Hey everyone. A few notes as we get into Vietnam 6. Like I said, I was breaking this one up into two shows and this second part is coming in over two hours, so I'm pretty happy about that decision. If anybody skips the end credits of these shows, I said last episode that I was going to be putting up show outlines on Patreon for everybody, chipping in in 10 bucks or more. I'm gonna get to that this week, I'm pretty sure. Likewise, if you wanna help or you already are helping on Patreon, two very important notes. This show is ending soon, so if you've been thinking about doing it, go do it, like, right now. And second, this show is ending soon, so make sure that you get all of your payments cancelled after the end of July, but before the end of August, unless you want to pay me to go to law school. On that note too, big thanks to Mike Escobar, R. James Gavreau, and Sandy Popham on Patreon, our new and newly even more generous supporters. I'll keep the political stuff to the end of this show, like the end of the last one, seeing as there's still stuff to say here. Rate and review, folks. Rate and review. We're kind of past the point where you could have made this a living for me. No getting out of law school now. But if you got any interest in SFD going on at some point in the future, getting it in front of a wider audience while I'm on hiatus would be a very good idea. And I'm going to keep paying for the show to be on the internet while I'm at school. All right. We're talking about Raul Salon, Henri Navarre, Truman, Eisenhower, Atchison, Dulles, Vodwin, Jap, and as always, Ho Chi Minh. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. As we get into 1952, we have to talk about Korea, and inasmuch as I'm sure you could get a quick canned history on YouTube, I think it's relevant to our purposes to try to run through it as quickly as possible here. Because, as I mentioned in the Kennan show, some of U.S. equivocation about how important the Korean Peninsula was for us, Stalin gave Kim Il-sung the go-ahead in June 1950 to invade the South in an attempt to consolidate the country under one government. American troops already stationed there, and the masses shipped over from Japan, which they had been occupying, had languished after the Second World War, with the army skimping on training and supply. Those deficits became quickly apparent as the North Vietnamese Army, the Inman Gun, pushed what were first strictly American and then officially UN forces almost into the ocean. A combined push about a month later into the war of General Johnny Walker's men in that pocket and General Douglas MacArthur's last stroke of strategic genius and amphibious landing of Marines at Inchon turned the tide, and now the UN forces pushed the Inman Gun back, 
First the line that had divided north and south at the narrow neck of the Korean peninsula and then above it. The decision to move farther north than the parallel was at first MacArthur's alone. More than once during the Korean War, he nearly provoked serious constitutional crises, choosing to ignore Truman's suggestions and then his direct orders in a case of the lifelong megalomania finally running out of control. The administration feared that by crossing the parallel, the UN advance might provoke a Chinese entry into the war, but when MacArthur forged ahead, Truman went along. Urged by the general, who operated out of Japan, where he'd become a kind of potentate in his own right, and who never spent a single night in Korea during the war, the UN forces chased the Inmungan up to the Yalu River, into the freezing waste that separated Korea from mainland China. All during the pursuit, MacArthur's sycophantic staff and intelligence services chose to ignore signs that the Chinese had already gotten into the fight, and were in fact infiltrating south above the mountain ridges, along the width of the north, even as the UN forces charged heedlessly up the valleys towards Manchuria. The Chinese, who had in fact decided in early October to join the war, and who had in fact been quietly moving hundreds of thousands of men south between and around the UN forces, sprung their trap, provoking the most devastating defeat and the longest, wildest, most tragic retreat in US military history up to that point, with tens of thousands of servicemen disappearing between the pincers of the Red Army before finally making a stand back at the 38th parallel where the war had begun. At this point, Truman and Acheson had had enough of MacArthur, who was calling for the use of nuclear bombs, the expansion of the war to mainland China, and the equipping of Chiang Kai-shek's twice-failed Kuomintang army for an amphibious invasion, and they sacked him. The man who took over for him, General Matthew Ridgway, is one of the forgotten heroes of the 20th century. But the man rallied the troops, held the Red Army at the 38th, and kept the men fighting, in the same spot, for the two years that it would take for the U.S. government to come around to the fact that the war would have to end here, having preserved nothing but the status quo. Fehrenbach's This Kind of War will give you all of the combat history you could ever need, along with some interesting philosophy on the U.S.'s position in the world, something you can hear about in my show American Legions, and David Halberstam's The Coldest Winter will give you the combat history and everything you need to know about U.S. politics that shaped the war and MacArthur's madness at the end. We will come back shortly to Matt Ridgway, who will play maybe the most important role in the American activity in Indochina at the end of the French War, I think by next episode, so hang on to that name. Now, with that covered, let's get back to Vietnam. Into 1952, with the continual increases in American assistance secured in his last months by Delatre, relations between French authorities and American officials on the ground were growing more and more tense. Saigon, overrun by American advisors, officials, diplomats, and civilian auxiliaries, was already becoming the city we know from our war movies, full of American films, American music, American clothes, and American products, none of which appealed to the sensibilities of the French. The French, meanwhile, maintained control on where the military aid we were providing went, but the MAG, the U.S. Military Assistance Advisory Group, the precursor to the better-known and later MACV, was allowed under the terms of our various agreements to conduct field inspections. These two increased tensions, with the French resenting any interference and their American counterparts resenting that any request for an inspection went through months of French delays and invented bureaucratic obstacles, ending, usually, as Lugavall says, quote, in an elaborate lunch table with four courses, red and white wine, and cognac toasts offered by the senior French officer present, unquote, rather than an actual inspection. Continuing in Lugavall, quote, Bemused though he was by the depth of the French mistrust, Howard Simpson of the U.S. Information Service, USIS, acknowledged that the brash behavior of many Americans in Saigon didn't help. 
The phrase ugly American was not yet in use, but the phenomenon could be observed on any given day. Moving through the streets in their large black sedans and new Jeep station wagons, hitting the bars and restaurants, en masse sporting crew cuts and aloha shirts that they left untucked, these Yanks never made a pretense of blending in. Even those who were more low-key and subtle tended to separate themselves from everyone but fellow Americans, a point that Congressman John F. Kennedy had noted on his visit the previous autumn. Each day, Simpson and other Americans from USIS and the aid mission met for pre-lunch beers at the Continental's Terrace Cafe, quote, a symbol of the old colonial Indochina, unquote. He recalled of these sessions, quote, We were a boisterous group, playing the match game for drinks and laughing loudly at inconsequential jokes, well aware of the disapproving colognes who left a cordon sanitaire of empty tables around us. In retrospect, unquote, a rueful Simpson concluded, quote, I can understand some of the French resentment, unquote, and unquote. Both the French and the Americans, Legoval reports, felt themselves unable to influence the other, despite having what should have been leverage. The French, their position and willingness to bear the brunt of the fighting. The Americans, the fact that by the middle of 1952, they were providing fully 40% of the money and materiel for the continuation of said fighting. The Americans felt unable to influence the French by withholding their aid, because any restriction might impede the French ability to participate in NATO and the European defense community. The French, of course, couldn't risk any diminution of American assistance. With the French afraid that even with that U.S. support, they might not be able to carry on the war and fulfill their obligations in Europe, interested Americans began to worry at this point that the French would leave Indochina the way that the British had left Greece and Turkey, having decided that the costs were just too much to bear. Those fears had some foundation back in metropolitan France, too. Delatre's death had taken what little enthusiasm was left in the French people right out of them, and in a parliamentary debate on funding for the war, politicians across the spectrum, not just from the left this time, began questioning the point. France was putting between one-sixth and one-seventh of her entire budget into the war by 1952, and with the United States exerting a firm and constant pressure to grant further independence to Indochina, it was unclear what she might gain even if she won. Pierre Mendes France, leader of the center-left radical socialists, became the figurehead for this questioning, if not totally anti-war position. I am asking for a change of policy in Indochina, he said. Quote, I have never advocated capitulation, but I have asked and I am still asking that every avenue be explored for an agreement with the Viet Minh. I am told one cannot negotiate with communists, with Moscow agents, but what else are the Americans doing in Korea? As long as we go on losing all of these officers and men in Indochina, as long as we go on spending 500 billion francs a year, we shall have no army in Europe and only 500 billion francs worth of inflation, poverty, and fuel for communist propaganda." Unquote. The Parliamentary Assembly ended up voting funding for the forces in Indochina at the behest of Prime Minister Plevin, who will be gone more or less in no time. We might hear about him again, but don't worry too much about the name. But they appropriated nothing for the Navy and Air Force, leaving those appropriations, like our own Congress does, for a later date. And while the government claimed the whole thing is a win in the press, other ministers reported that the only reason it had passed at all was that they had to support their soldiers until a way could be found to get them out. Lugval notes two other factors that secured this minor victory for the French government. First, France's North African possessions were beginning to question their own membership in the French Union, and efforts to stamp out independence movements were growing more difficult by the day. Losing Indochina entirely might have fanned those smoldering resentments into the flame of real rebellion, as indeed it would shortly afterwards. 
And second, Prime Minister Plevin had secured a three-power conference on Indochina with the UK, the US, and France, the announcement of which shored up French parliamentary hopes that the three nations could coordinate policy and make assurances in the case of a Chinese entry into the war. The danger of a Chinese entry was not, in the minds of the West at least, remote, although as far as I know, Beijing never actually considered it. 250,000 Red Chinese troops were stationed just across the border from Jap's Mountain guerrillas. The Chinese had entered the Korean War years previously, and everyone had been afraid since then of a similar move in Vietnam. And finally, everyone was afraid of doing anything to make it more clearly a war between China and the West. The Chinese fighting in Korea were, after all, supposedly volunteers. The Americans had agreed to this conference, that is the Three Power Conference, in part in an attempt to keep the French, who had been demoralized by the disaster, the ongoing disaster, at Hoa Binh, and the death of General Delatre, from attempting any direct negotiations with Ho Chi Minh and the DRVN. Korea and Vietnam had become, in American minds, two fronts in one war, technically against the Koreans and the Vietnamese, but tacitly against the Chinese and world communism. With the Korean War already stalemated at the 38th parallel and unlikely to go anywhere given massive Chinese quote-unquote volunteer support, Vietnam was the active battlefield, and Truman did not want it closed up. Logoval notes that there was a definite difference in the way that European and American diplomats approached negotiations with their communist adversaries. Trained up by centuries of existing side-by-side with strong potential enemies, the Europeans recognized both the uses and the impossibilities of war used for limited gains. Most of all, the times when you just had to pack it in and take the best of a bad bargain rather than fighting fruitlessly towards defeat. Logoval says that, quote, Americans, on the other hand, shielded from predatory powers for much of their history by two vast oceans, and possessing a very different historical tradition, tended to see things in much less equivocal terms. For them, old-world diplomacy, with its ignoble and complex political choices, had to be rejected, and decisions made on the definite plane of moral principle. The United States, that principle taught, represented the ultimate form of civilization, the source of inspiration for humankind. Her policies were uniquely altruistic, her institutions worthy of special emulation. Any hostility to America, therefore, was, by definition, hostility to progress and righteousness, and was, again by definition, illegitimate." And this is where we get some of the dangerous innocence of Pyle, the character that is Green's titular quiet American from the novel of that same name, and some of the idea that Kennan expresses in his book American Diplomacy that we ought to be less moralistic in our diplomatic relations. I always found Kennan's formulation of that idea a bit odd, because I, in this podcast, am always trying to introduce a certain kind of moralism into affairs, but that I also tended to agree one for one with everything that Kennan has written. Well, this is the rub. This is the difference between what Kennan and I mean by moralism. When they say, when the thing that Logoval is talking about, it's not so much moralism qua moralism, but the self-righteous attitude that we take and we took towards any disagreement with the outside world. I'm looking to apply a morality of less death, whereas the morality that he is talking about is this Cold War kind, where the U.S. takes as a given the moral unassailability of its own position, and as a corollary, the necessary ill intentions of any opposing position. What I mean to say is that I look at what we did, for example, in Guatemala and Iran as immoral 
because of the great death that it caused and the way that it actually contravened our official positions vis-a-vis democracy and national sovereignty. The people who enacted those decisions from Eisenhower on were looking at it in a different way, which is that anything we did by definition was moral and anyone who opposed us was by definition immoral. What compounded all of this and played into Truman and Acheson's final unwillingness to countenance any deal-making in Indochina by the French was that 1952, the year in which we just entered, was an election year in the heyday of McCarthyism. They were fending off attacks from the recently sacked General MacArthur, from Eisenhower, and, more broadly, from the entire Republican establishment, which was busy painting the State Department and most of the rest of the government as either unwitting communist stooges or active collaborators with Moscow. They were already taking a beating over the negotiations in Korea at Panmunjom, and there was no way that they'd open themselves up on another front by agreeing to French requests for the same. Jean Letourneau, the French minister for overseas territories, who had, in the wake of Delatre's passing, taken over the job of High Commissioner for Indochina, he headed to D.C. in June 1952 to talk over agreements for more U.S. aid. In contrast to what his American counterparts wanted to hear, though, he spoke publicly about the hopelessness of the war, about the need to immediately start negotiations toward an armistice, and he drew parallels to the U.S. conflict in Korea, where peace talks were ongoing, and had been, in fact, for a long time at that point. Acheson interpreted Letourneau for the National Security Council, the way that everyone around our current president has to interpret his buffooneries into something else entirely, saying that the Frenchmen had meant that they would seek an armistice, yes, but only after the military situation had turned around, so that they could negotiate from a position of strength, as the Americans pretended to be doing in Korea. The NSC, the National Security Council, turned out a document, a report, NSC 124-2, that summer, which outlined the domino theory, plans for joint talks with the British and the French, those trilateral talks we just mentioned, and in paragraph 12 of the opening set of recommendations, said that in the case of communist intervention in the conflict, that is of Chinese invasion, quote, If subsequent to aggression against Indochina and execution of the minimum necessary courses of action listed in paragraph 10c above, the U.S. determines jointly with the U.K. and France that expanded military action against communist China is rendered necessary by the situation, the United States should take air and naval action in conjunction with at least France and the U.K. against all suitable military targets in China, avoiding insofar as practicable those targets in areas near the boundaries of the USSR, in order not to increase the risk of direct Soviet involvement. In the event that the concurrence of the United Kingdom and France to expanded military action against Communist China is not obtained, the United States should consider taking unilateral action, unquote. That is, even prior to these future trilateral talks, the U.S. had internally laid out plans to bomb the length and breadth of mainland China, and played with the commitment of U.S. troops to the maintenance of French domination in Tonkin. Back home in Europe, the spring and summer of 1952 were the first times that we can talk about real anti-war agitation on the part of the French people. The American administration, though, thought that the French could and ought to pursue Delatre's strategy, which had already pretty much failed at Hoabin and was turning into a sieve in the Delta, until the situation had turned around, quote-unquote, and that only then they could consider any kind of negotiation towards an armistice, and that was a position that would not soften. My fellow Americans, I want to talk to you plainly tonight 
about what we're doing in Korea and about our policy in the Far East. In the simplest terms, what we're doing in Korea is this. We are trying to prevent a third world war. The communists in the Kremlin are engaged in a monstrous conspiracy to stamp out freedom all over the world. If they were to succeed, the United States would be numbered among their principal victims. It must be clear to everyone that the United States cannot and will not sit idly by and await foreign conquest. The only question is, when is the best time to meet the threat and how is the best time to meet it? The best time to meet the threat is in the beginning. It is easier to put out a fire in the beginning when it is small than after it has become a roaring blaze. And the best way to meet the threat of aggression is for the peace-loving nations to act together. If they don't act together, they are likely to be picked off one by one. The aggression against Korea is the boldest and most dangerous move the communists have yet made. The attack on Korea was a part of a greater plan for conquering all Asia. I would like to read to you from a secret intelligence report which came to us after the attack. The report tells what a communist officer in the Far East told his men several months before the invasion of Korea. Here's what he said. In order to successfully undertake the long-awaited world revolution, we must first unify Asia, Java, Indochina, Malaya, India, Tibet, Thailand, Philippines, and Japan are our ultimate targets. Just as Jean Letourneau took over as high commissioner, General Raoul Salan, the guy that had been accused of smoking opium and said that, yeah, he totally smoked opium, took over as commander-in-chief in Indochina at the time of Delatre's death on the 11th of January, 1952. That year started poorly as a war year for the French, with Salan having to order the evacuation of the hell of Hoa Bin in the middle of February. The battle had consumed the efforts of a huge number of Frenchmen, eventually costing the lives of maybe 900, with another 4,000 counted as wounded. The battle ended up doing little to serve the French goals. Every other front in the theater had been cut to the bone to feed men and material into the so-called meat grinder, and for almost the entire four and a half months of the battle, the units in Hoa Binh had been guarding nothing at all, since the Viet Minh had, as Fall says, in its usual fashion, built a bypass around the town within weeks of the start of the fighting. From Fall's book to Vietnam's, quote, By the end of the Battle of Hoa Binh, the Red River Delta was communist infiltrated as never before, with major elements of the 316th and 320th divisions operating inside the French battle line, and laying siege to such provincial seats as Tai Binh and Nam Dinh. And now all communist divisions, though they had paid a collective price of perhaps 12,000 casualties for the experience, had a close-quarters object lesson in French methods of fighting. They could see for themselves the limitations of French rocket and napalm-firing aircraft, the comparative abilities of Moroccans and foreign legionnaires in jungle warfare or in defending a fortified position. They could shake down their own flaws in fire control and communications, and all this without ever vitally endangering their own positions. 
After all, the whole battle took place in the section of Tonkin farthest from Ho Chi Minh's underground capital, and any Viet Minh unit that was badly mauled, or whose commander lost his nerve, had only to retreat two miles back into the jungle to be completely safe, for the French had their hands full holding onto Road 6 without sending scarce battalions on wild goose chases." Unquote. It's an interesting idea that Fall brings up, that part of winning a war is figuring out how to beat your enemy without first losing to him in the process. Fall thinks that it's Hoa Bin that finally clinches this learning process for Jap. He knows how he can take French positions with high but acceptable losses, and how he can trap the French into spending the preponderance of their forces in the defense of a nowhere position, allowing him to more fully control the area that mattered, the Delta. The French would think they'd hit on a similar gambit after the upcoming Battle of Na San, but they would be thoroughly, thoroughly mistaken. Now, I've got footage from Pathé, the British newsreel company, of the Battle of Hoa Bin, and I'll have that up in the show notes. Uh, it's silent, which is why it won't be in a transition after this section, but it's pretty long, and you can see all the major players there. Hoa Bin had, though, taken all those men from Jap 2, and it occupied most of his logistical apparatus as it was ongoing. So Jap took the spring and the monsoon season to break off and prepare for what came next. Now, Hoa Bin had been misguided from the beginning, and what the French would seize on after Nassan would be similarly misguided. But there was one other strategy that the French were pursuing, never on a grand scale, that was encountering, even at this time, some success. And those were the mixed airborne commando groups, known as the GCMAs, according to their French initials. The commandos were something like the Green Berets that we would later deploy in Vietnam, and they were based on the experience of the Maquis, the French resistance fighters, and the Americans who had fought in South China during the Second World War. But unlike those previous efforts, and unlike the Green Berets, who were connected to logistical systems, the GCMAs were to operate, and would operate, and remain permanently in enemy territory. In this whole section, if I'm quoting anything, I'm quoting from Fall, so beginning with this one, quote, Individual men were to be returned via aircraft from secret landing strips if they were sick or wounded, or, as often happened, had simply broken down physically or mentally under the strain of that kind of warfare. In other words, the GCMAs were not quote-unquote raider forces, but real guerrillas. When the war ended in Indochina, they were also far larger than both the Chindits, that is a British force of this kind, or the Marauders, which is an American force of this kind, had ever been. By mid-1954, there were 15,000 of them, requiring 300 tons of airborne supplies a month, unquote. The corps of each commando totaled a few hundred men, and each one was led by a handful of French NCOs and maybe a lieutenant, with the rest being made up of non-ethnically Vietnamese tribesmen, since the GCMAs operated exclusively in the highlands and the jungles, doing to the Viet Minh what the Viet Minh were doing to the French in the deltas, that is, operating behind their lines and screwing up their logistics and their supplies. In some cases, says Fall, even corporals found themselves leading an entire tribe into war with the Viet Minh. Recruitment, though, to the GMCAs was difficult, says Fall, since it meant for officers being orphaned from their home units and likely totally exempted from promotion. Quote, while some of the sergeants found themselves saddled with tactical and supply problems, usually assigned to majors or lieutenant colonels, but again without the slightest recognition for their special performance, unquote. Fall says that the particulars of the situation meant that the first generation and the majority of the rest of the GCMA leaders were, 
in a few more words, scoundrels and brigands, and that the French army, when putting NCOs in charge of huge numbers of tribesmen, didn't do them even the favor of granting a fictitious rank. Quote, the tribesmen obeyed them on affection alone, and on the all-important fact that they proved themselves equal to the task. Those who did not were not heard from again. Perhaps this was the best way to get capable guerrilla leaders. The worst part of the GCMA's war, and I'm still quoting from Fall here, was the feeling of psychological isolation. The two or three Frenchmen in the group knew that they were at the mercy of the lone traitor in their unit, the one disgruntled tribesman who, ten years ago, had been kicked around in his village by some French NCO drunk with power, and who now saw his time for revenge. Or he may even have been a member of the dreaded 421st Intelligence Battalion of the Viet Minh Forces, a special unit of the communists whose job it was to gather information among the tribesmen about the operations of the French-led guerrillas. But there was also the fear of the crippling wound, and that perhaps was worse than the fear of death itself. There were operation areas where a wounded man had to be paddled downriver for three days and nights just to reach the nearest airstrip from which he could be evacuated, if there was a plane, if the weather was right, and if the weak radio sets of the groups had managed to make contact with their headquarters outside. Another important psychological factor for the French members of the GCMA was the quote-unquote endless tunnel aspect of the whole operation. To train a man for guerrilla work was long and tedious. If he managed to stay alive for more than a year in his assignment, he usually had learned at least one or even several mountain dialects perfectly, and had physically adapted to the murderous climate and the food and to the way of life in the jungle. The man had become irreplaceable because of his specialized knowledge, and the better he was, the more certain he could be that he would be sent out again and again until his luck ran out, his health broke, or his mind cracked up. There were no magical 50 missions to look forward to. No end to the ordeal in sight beyond the end of the war itself, unquote. The tribesmen that the French were leading had a version of the same problem. Although the commandos were successful in attacking Viet Minh installations and in tying down Viet Minh troops in mop-up operations the way that the Viet Minh tied down French formations in the Red River Delta, they were not meant to, and the French could not, in general, actually take and hold the highland areas. So even if the locals in the commandos were dedicated to the French cause, once the Viet Minh sent cadres into a village and began organizing, it was only a matter of time before the Viet Minh authorities knew definitively who was who, with the GCMAs unable to protect the villages from which their men were drawn, as the Viet Minh more thoroughly penetrated the Thai highlands between China and Laos in the northwest of Tonkin, more and more villages went neutral, refusing to spy for the Vietnamese, but refusing also to help the commandos. Quote, in some areas, the GCMA commander would have to marry the daughter of the local chieftain to ensure his loyalty, and would have to observe dozens of taboos, any violation of which would cost him his life and jeopardize his mission, but which would find a poor reception in Hanoi or Saigon as a reason for the postponement of an operation. All this required practical knowledge of ethnology and anthropology, which could not be acquired in colleges and training camps or manuals, the more so as many of the tribes had never been studied, and some of them had not even been discovered until the commando group stumbled over them." Unquote. Fall says that another interesting experience was that of some Thai tribesmen who belonged to a GCMA unit that was, unusually, allowed to come within French lines for rest and resupply. They saw a movie in Lai Chao. Quote, French army film units usually preferred showing several short subjects to an audience whose understanding of French was poor rather than one long feature, feeling, correctly, that interest would be better sustained. Many of those short features came from the U.S. Information Service film libraries, and that particular evening they included, of all things, one on a volunteer fire department in a small town in Illinois. 
The tribesmen had seen aircraft and jeeps, and even the French Ford sedan, which their chieftain Deo Van Long had had the French fly in for him. It took him six months of hard work by several hundred coolies to fix a few hundred yards of road upon which to drive it. But they had never seen anything like the hook and ladder assemblies shown in the film. Neither had they ever seen flat land with no mountains on the horizon, or asphalted and straight roads. The hook and ladder rig swaying at 60 miles per hour through the Illinois countryside became probably the greatest film success the Thai Hills had ever seen, and for days on end, the tribesmen would filter in even from the surrounding communist-held areas to see the quote-unquote big American car on the straight road. USIS and an Illinois fire department have had many fast friends in some forgotten villages deep in communist Vietnamese territory, to whom America will forever mean nothing else but a hook and ladder truck on a paved road, unquote. Some on the French side, I suppose the voices that won out, argued that the GCMAs were from the first a waste of men and materiel, but their proponents could point to that the actual investment was relatively small, and that by the end of the war, huge numbers of Viet Minh troops were pinned down behind their own lines, chasing what were, in French army terms, groups of three and four men. False cited a Vietnamese commissar saying in spring 1953 that, quote, the French imperialists have succeeded in leaving behind them their agents, who continue to be a nuisance to us. At the beginning, they were only a handful, but now the rebel movement against the Democratic Republic of Vietnam has increased, in speed of movement as well as in numbers. There must be at least 2,000 of them now. This movement begins to worry us seriously. A large part of our forces is pinned down in mopping up operations against these rebels. The reason for the great extension of the rebel movement, and why it succeeds in holding out against us, stems from the fact that we are not supported by popular opinion in the Highlands." Unquote. There's also more than a small whiff of Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now in the GCMAs to me. Men going native, far behind enemy lines, finally fighting the war on the Viet Minh's terms. An ugly jungle war, both sides in all likelihood doing little to respect the rules of war, and getting involved in tribal politics to do so. Men quite literally driven mad by the mission, just as Colonel Kurtz was, mumbling into his radio about a snail crawling along the edge of a straight razor. Likewise, the distastefulness of the whole affair to the regular army men, and their unwillingness to commit to this strategy, instead pursuing the same plans that had been losing them the war for five years by the time the first GCMA was founded. Fall puts his account of the commandos near another story, not at all accidentally, and together they highlight how the French, like Delatra, never quite understood Indochina or the war that they were fighting, and why, despite all the military innovations, despite the influx of American aid, despite it all, that they'd really lost it before they'd begun. Fall was in Saigon, spending the afternoon with two officers and their girls at a bungalow. The officers were playing tennis. Quote, then emerged from the veranda a soldier in French uniform. His small stature, brown skin, and western-type features showed him to be a Cambodian. He wore the blue field cap with the golden anchor of the French Marines and the three golden chevrons of a master sergeant. On his chest, above the left breast pocket, were three rows of multicolored ribbons, the Croix de Guerre with four citations, campaign ribbons with the clasps of France's every colonial campaign since the Moroccan pacification of 1926, the Italian campaign of 1943, and the drive to the Rhine of 1945. In his left hand, he carried several papers crossed diagonally with tricolored ribbon, travel orders, like mine, which also awaited the signature of one of the officers playing tennis. The Cambodian remained in the shadow of the veranda's awnings until the officers had interrupted their game and had joined the two women with their drinks, then strode over in a measured military step, came stiffly to attention in a salute, 
and handed the orders for himself and his squad to the captain. The captain looked up in surprise, still with a half-smile on his face from the remark he had made previously. His eyes narrowed suddenly as he understood that he was being interrupted. Obviously, he was annoyed, but not really furious. Sergeant, you can see that I'm busy. Please wait until I have time to deal with your travel orders. Don't worry, you will have them in time for the convoy. The sergeant stood stiffly at attention, some of his almost white hair glistening in the sun where it peeked from under the cap, his wizened face betraying no emotion whatever. At your orders, mon capitan. A sharp salute, a snappy about face. The incident was closed, the officers had had their drink, and now resumed their game. The sergeant resumed his watch near where the Cambodian mess boys were following the game, but this time he had squatted down on his haunches, a favorite Cambodian position of repose which would leave most Europeans with partial paralysis for several hours afterwards. Almost without moving his head, he attentively followed the tennis game, his travel orders still tightly clutched in his left hand. The sun began to settle behind the trees of the garden, and a slight cooling breeze rose from the nearby lake. It was 1700. All of a sudden, there rose behind the trees, from the nearby French camp, the beautiful bell-clear sounds of a bugle playing Lower the Flag, the signal which, in the French army, marks the end of the working day as the colors are struck. Nothing changed at the tennis court. The two officers continued to play their set, the women continued their chatter, and the mess boys their silent vigil. Only the old sergeant had moved. He was now standing stiffly at attention, his right hand raised to the cap and the flat palm salute of the French army, facing in the direction from which the bugle tones came, saluting, as per regulations, France's tricolor hidden behind the trees. The rays of the setting sun shone upon the immobile brown figure, catching the gold of the anchor and of the chevrons and of one of the tiny metal stars of his ribbons. Something very warm welled up in me. I felt like running over to the little Cambodian who had fought all his life for my country, and apologizing to him for my countrymen here who didn't care about him, and for my countrymen in France who didn't even care about their countrymen fighting in Indochina. And in one single blinding flash, I knew that we were going to lose this war. Korea, United Nations troops push on in the cautious advance against the communists. An advance whose purpose, General Ridgway states, is not to seize ground, but to wipe out the enemy. The Chinese Red Army, fighting desperately in small isolated stands, prefers to give ground on wider fronts rather than join battle. And it's up to the infantry to clear out the pockets of die-hard communists. With the enemy falling back to the Han River, United Nations commanders had expected that the Reds would make their stand there. But under a steady, withering barrage, GIs are able to cross the river and establish a beachhead. Within two hours, a pontoon bridge spans the Han, and United Nations troops and equipment pour across toward the capital city of Seoul. Moments later, Chinese communists, prisoners, are being marched to the rear. Seoul, too, falls into United Nations' hands, this time not as a prime military target, but as the result of the clean United Nations sweep up the Korean Peninsula. The once proud capital of the Korean Republic is a mass of ruins whose able-bodied men have been carried off to forced service in North Korea. Children and the aged are left to see the liberation of their city. Above Seoul, 
Mutt and the Marines take over. For once, the Marines almost meet their match as spring thaws slow down the United Nations push. The Marines came back into action only recently from the Hungnam B-10. Despite obstacles, United Nations forces drive on to the 38th parallel border of North Korea. Like we said a little while ago, both the French and Jap were happy to keep lower profiles after the evacuation of Hoa Bin. Viet Minh guerrilla and terrorist activities continued, but the general was still rebuilding, resupplying, and retraining his troop losses from the previous year, from trying to break the Delatra line. He was also looking for an easier nut to crack with his regular army than the hardened defenses of the Red River Delta. And Giap, having seen what the French could do close to their base areas, decided on a sort of combination of the far-flung attacks of the second phase of Revolutionary War and the concentrated forces in out-and-out battle of the third, which is the general offensive. Jap fixed on the Thai Highlands, so named for a T-A-I tribe, rather than the Thai T-H-A-I people that live much further west in Thailand. These were the highlands to the west of the Delta, part of a continuous mountain region that went on all the way to Burma and beyond. They were sparsely populated, extremely difficult to traverse, barely played host to any roads, and, best of all for Jap, went almost entirely without French protection. They covered, in Vietnam, an area the size of Vermont, and the small number of tiny French outposts in the region represented no real resistance, while also allowing Jap to very clearly tell the French that he was making an apparent attack into Laos. Moreover, since the Viet Minh had, up to this point, been unsuccessful in winning over the 300,000 or so Thai, T-A-I, tribesmen to their side of the war, as Logoval writes, quote, Large-scale operations in this region could plant the necessary infrastructure for political action and, moreover, would force Raoul Salon to choose between abandoning the frontier and exposing northern Laos, or defending it. It would be an agonizing choice for the French, Jap knew. If Salon accepted battle in the northwest, he would draw crucial resources away from the delta to fight in an area desperately short of airfields and passable roads for his motorized troops, unquote. And if the French CNC General Salon did not give battle, he would effectively be surrendering one-third of Indochina, that is Laos, to the Viet Minh, who had already done some organizing among the communist path at Lao there. The operation would make it difficult or impossible for the French to deploy their heavy equipment. Their planes would be flying at the absolute maximum limit of their fuel tanks, trying to hit troops under thick jungle canopies or the Krachin fog. The Vietnamese would be able to move over hill and through valley, outmaneuvering the French cross-country and keeping themselves always within a short distance of safe retreat. So it was that in September 1952, first the Vietnamese Communist Party's Politburo, and then Ho and the Chinese leadership in Beijing agreed on plans for a northwest offensive, which would strike across the northwestern Thai highlands and into Laos starting with a line of small French forts along the Nigia Lo Ridge, which rises in a long line running northwest to southeast between the Black and Red Rivers, and then pressing both towards the border, which would spook the French, and down towards the Delta to increase penetration there, not to actually try to break the Delatra line. You remember way back when, when I continued the geography lesson that I started at the very beginning of the series? Well, here's a bespoke little new geography lesson for you. If you take your left hand, and I, I mean really do this, if you take your left hand and make the peace sign with your knuckles facing towards you, now really do this again, and then you touch your index finger as you're making the peace sign to a table in front of you. Now I know this is an awkward position, so ideally do this in public. Then the line between your fingers, between your index and your middle fingers, is the mouth of the Red River Delta, the coastline of Tonkin. 
The delta itself is between your two fingers. That triangle between them, that's the delta. Now the point at which your fingers join up when they meet your hand, that's where the red and black rivers are closest before they split up and form the delta, right? Before they become all these different little rivers. Now, if you can imagine them traveling straight back and separately towards your wrist, along the lines of those two fingers, you know, as you get into your metacarpals and carpals, right? That's those two rivers flowing back towards the Chinese border, which is your wrist. Your wrist is the Chinese border. Now, your middle finger on back, that's the Red River. It's north of the Black River. Your index finger on back to your wrist, that's the Black River. The area between them, from your knuckles to your wrist, that's the Nagia Low Ridge. So your two fingers, knuckles going back, those are the rivers, in between them, highlands, ridge, right? Hanoi, by the way, is just below the crotch in your fingers, just inside the delta. Now the area above your middle finger, north of your middle finger, that's pretty much the highland base area of the Viet Minh. From your wrist leftward, that's Laos. The path from those base areas to Laos in the west is mostly highlands, with the two river valleys cutting through that path. Now, the French did not have this area, this area between your fingers, heavily occupied, but they did have lines of forts on the Nagialo Ridge, which is the area between your fingers back to your wrist, and along the Black River, which is following your index finger back to your wrist. If Jap could clear those lines of French forts out, he would have uninterrupted communications between his base areas and Laos, and he would be able to either threaten or actually invade that country. This is all about the second stage of the Revolutionary Peasant War. Attack where the enemy is weak, make him commit to peripheral areas, allowing you to penetrate the important areas, which are the deltas that produce the rice, and keep him off balance. He thought he was safe in Laos, to the left of your wrist? Well, then go attack him there. Jap put 30,000 men on the Red River. Remember, this is your middle finger going up to your wrist in preparation for the attack. How did Jap continuously move so many men? Because 30,000 soldiers meant tens or hundreds of thousands of porters along with them? Around without ever being detected with enough precision to be interdicted, strafed, or bombed by French air power? Well, Bernard Fall has a few words on that subject. Quote, In view of the French mastery of the air, the Viet Minh troops had made a veritable fetish out of camouflage. The greatest pains would be taken even in safe rear areas to camouflage anything which could offer the French a suitable target. This constant emphasis on perfect camouflage, carried out relentlessly even when at rest, made the communist soldier as well as the civilian population unbeatable masters of the game. The palm leaf helmet of the communist soldier with its constantly worn camouflage net on it was the major trademark of the regular. In addition, every regular Viet Minh soldier on the march carried a large wire mesh disc on his back and head, adorned with the foliage of the terrain through which he was passing. As soon as the terrain changed, it was the responsibility of each soldier to change the camouflage of the man ahead of him as the surroundings changed themselves. Rarely would a communist unit be in too much of a hurry not to take the time to change camouflage when it left a dark green forest to enter a lighter green grassland area or the marshy brown of a rice field about to be harvested, unquote. The French weren't totally unaware that something was going on now in September 1952. Like we've mentioned, their intelligence services were occasionally pretty good, and they knew as well as Jap did that after the rains, both sides would be making some move. They didn't manage to pin down quite what and quite where until Jap moved on a small town southeast of Nigialo on the 15th of October. As Fall says, though, quote, The battle for the Thai Hill Country began on October 11th, 1952, with three communist divisions, or about 40,000 men, advancing in three columns across the Red River on a 40-mile front, unquote. The French commander in charge of the region, who knows what his name is, it's not important to us now, 
immediately suspected an attack on the ridge above the town because of the increased Viet Minh movement in the area, and he dropped somebody that we've heard about before and which we will hear about again, Parachute Battalion Commander Major Bigeard, into Tule, between this small town and the Nigeolo Ridge. If the Viet Minh were to make a move on the ridge, then French forces occupying forts on the ridge and on the eastern side of the Black River were going to have to retreat to forts on the western side of that river, and from there, in a more concentrated position, attempt to repel the attackers. Bigard and his men, their role, was to cover that retreat. Jack, with many more men than the French had ever anticipated, blew through the forts along the ridgeline, and the French made a spastic, panicked retreat back to the Black River. Giap, hamstrung by porter and bicycle supply lines, was not able to secure an encirclement, or the total victory it would have entailed. I want to, here again, give some stuff out of fall, because the story of Bigard and his paratroopers might be worth hearing. The French high command dropped one of its treasured, elite airborne groups, that is Bigard's groups, not because that group might have a chance of holding off Jap's men. As Fall says, quote, there was not the slightest illusion as to the chances of their survival, unquote but to keep that attack from being a repeat of the 1950 border offensive, that is, a disastrous defeat for the French. Bigard and his men, many of them Vietnamese, and one of them, a Father Jandel, a Catholic chaplain, dropped into a tiny post named Tule, a medieval fort left by some forgotten warlord in the middle of a small, flat plain on top of the Nigiolo Ridge, surrounded by hills on October 16, 1952. The men dug in around the fort's lone mud-brick tower, and for three days watched and listened to the battles that were pushing the rest of the French forces to retreat off of the ridge. Hanoi ordered at 9 o'clock on October 19th that Bigard start making his own retreat before anyone had attacked the post. But the paratroop commander knew that there was one last rifle company, maybe a hundred of their compatriots, who had still not gotten out and off the ridge, so Bigard ignored those orders and gave them the night to escape. In the preceding days, and maybe during that night itself, Jap's forces, meanwhile, had encircled the post at Tule, encircled Bigard's post, and they'd made their usual preparations, hauling artillery pieces onto all of the surrounding hills. They attacked, but Bigard's men survived the night, weathering two concerted assaults on the wire and an unending barrage from above. In the morning, the paratroopers decided to move. Anyone who was getting out would have gotten out, and if they'd stayed, they'd just be trapped by a paltry holding force while the rest of the Viet Minh moved on, and then they'd be ground down to nothing. From Fall, quote, The battalion already had five severely wounded stretcher cases, and the French made preparations to carry them along on the trek to the Black River. Each stretcher was assigned four two-man teams for portage and protection. The dense tropical heat, coupled with the famous Mio paths, which lead straight up on one side of a hill and straight down the other, exhausted two stretcher bearers with their 200-pound load in less than 15 minutes. The same held, of course, for the two crew-served weapons, mortars and machine guns, and for the radio sets and ammunition, which had to be hand-carried. Nearly every paratrooper, including the officers, carried an additional burden beyond his regular field pack, unquote. And I think right in the middle of this, it might be time for another brief primer on jungle warfare. In the highlands that they were now fighting, the terrain was not only difficult for the French to physically navigate, it was positionally innavigable. Anyone who's ever seen a mountain and never been in the mountains has the impression that you could make your way by peaks or hills, using them as landmarks. But highlands, mountainous areas, are endless chains of identical land features, especially when glimpsed through dense forest canopies, and especially when the men in question are, as the French were, equipped with rudimentary and inaccurate maps. Is this one same-looking hill or another? Does the map even have elevation lines to try to compare them? 
And from deep in the jungle, how would you even see that change in elevation with any accuracy anyway? The French units, if they had no Thai tribesmen to guide them on these trails, or if, more often, they were avoiding the trails that would lead them into Viet Minh ambushes, they had to hack their way through thick undergrowth on the slopes and even thicker bamboo in the valleys. This too, if you've never been in a jungle, is hard to imagine. But it's not the dilettantish occasional swinging you see, for example, in Platoon. It's step-by-step, step, every single movement forward having to be carved out of the foliage. All of this was undertaken in sweltering, choking heat, and the French forces, when they were retreating, like those fleeing the Nigeo Low Ridge, like Big Eared's men, were carrying all of what scant food or water they had in their hands. From Logoval, quote, There were the fearsome tigers of lore, often heard if not often encountered, and poisonous snakes and scorpions. Stinging insects of various kinds were a constant menace, as were blood-sucking leeches and burrowing ticks. And there were rats, big and savage, that could find their way even into a jungle fort's bunkhouse to bite through a sleeping soldier's boot into his foot. This is what the helplessly wounded and abandoned French soldier most dreaded. Not that the enemy troops would find him, but that he would be set upon by the rats. Or if not the rats, the ants. If you were really wounded badly, a legionnaire observed, there was an old German saying, Magenschuss, Kopfschuss, it's Spritze. Belly shot, head shot, it's an overdose job. They'd give you a shot of morphine, that was your lot. We had these collapsible ampules, and we used to stick them in a chap's cheek. You gave them an overdose if they got their legs blown off. You're 300 kilometers from anywhere. What are you going to do? The chap would be covered in ants in a moment, unquote. What's to be remembered and emphasized, too, is that the Viet Minh were not immune from any of this. They had less access to medical supplies, virtually none to morphine. The French could often expect, if they made their escape, trucks and triage centers, or even airplanes. The Vietnamese, if they were lucky, week-long stretcher rides to tended camps. The Viet Minh, likewise, weren't from the highlands. The rice-rich deltas, not the jungled mountains, were their home. And if they were both more used to, and by virtue of their weight and stature, more able to subsist on less food, they also had less access to the drugs that for the most part inoculated the French against the region's endemic malaria, dysentery, cholera, and typhoid. But the Vietnamese, despite those lacks, and at this point in the war of native Thai tribesmen to guide them through the bush, had learned things about jungle warfare that the French, except for the commandos, never quite understood. From Fall, quote, In his hard-hitting post-mortem of the operation, this operation, the newly arrived commander of the Gap 2, Lieutenant Colonel Lang Le, noted the incredible ability of the enemy to camouflage his gun positions and camps so as to render them invisible to aerial observation and ground reconnaissance. In contrast, Lang Le noted, the French paratroopers would establish their bivouacs without much concert about camouflage and, like any rich Western army, would drop along their path empty cigarette packs and ration containers to leave a track like Hansel and Gretel for communist patrols to follow, unquote. Back to Bigard, though, he and his paratroopers found their progress surprisingly easy at first, able to stroll out of the valley of Tulane, in which they had thought they were trapped without any enemy contact. The Viet Minh, however, had been learning through this whole war, and they vastly preferred to let the French break camp, attacking them while they were strung out in the jungle, rather than ensconced in fortifications and wire. From Fall, quote, Thus, the whole 6th Parachute Battalion walked into a vast trap laid between Tule Pass and the first hill line, unquote. When the Viet Minh sprang that trap, they virtually erased the two rearguard companies of the battalion, allowing the front companies, now racing through the jungle, to continue heading for the Black River and possible salvation. Bigard knew, though, that with his wounded in tow, and with other French units probably not making nearly as good time as he was through the jungle, that one more last stand would have to be made to give them all time to make the river. 
When at the end of the first day's battle and march out of Tulei, Bigyard came upon Muang Chen, a minuscule outpost manned by 80 Thai irregulars, a French master sergeant named Payroll, and three other French NCOs, they found the men who would have to make that stand. Muang Chen was just one tree log bunker and two bunk houses, meant to be more of a fortified police station than an actual fort, but Muang Chen was what they had. All this from fall. Look here, Payroll, said Big Eared. I've got 500 men with me, paratroops. We've got one mission, to hold out long enough in the mountain areas until reinforcements can be made available for the Black River Line. The Viets are about one hour behind us, and we need an additional three hours. You're going to give us those additional three hours. It's your two platoons against our battalion and the other garrisons in the Thai country. You've got to last three hours at least, and we can make it. Payroll, 34, gulped hard. His 80 men against the bulk of the 312th Division's 6,000. They wouldn't have even a ghost of a chance. And back home in Verdun, this was his little girl's birthday. He had even kept a bottle of champagne. It was lukewarm, of course, but nevertheless champagne for the occasion. Well, he'd drink it another time, if there was another time. Bien, mon commandant, said Perrault. Thank you, said Bigard. I knew you fellows wouldn't fail me. Both men stepped back into the dusk, where the paratroopers were lying on the ground along the path, which they hadn't even bothered to unstrap. They knew that they had to march on in a few minutes with their rations and heavy ammunition clips, and their wounded on the stretchers, unquote. By 6.15, Bigard's last men had already disappeared into the jungle towards the river, and Sergeant Payroll set his men to improving the fortifications they had to hand in the time that they had left. Quote, the Thai partisans were digging in silence new firing emplacements for the automatic rifles, deepening a few communications trenches, and refilling some of the sandbags which had flattened out during the recent rains. Although they had not been told about the forthcoming mission, they knew, in the mysterious way in which news travels, in countries where nearly everyone is illiterate, that huge enemy forces were coming. And as good hunters who had stalked prey ever since they were able to walk, they had estimated their own chances of survival just as accurately as had the French Major. Within less than an hour after the departure of the paratroopers, the first Viet Minh mortar shells began to rain down on Wang Chen. Again, the enemy had succeeded in establishing himself within firing distance without being detected by any of the patrols which the besieged garrison had established on the likely paths of approach. Viet Minh intelligence or previous reconnaissance had been, once more, perfect. The main thrust of the attack was directed against the southern bunker, where a small fold of the terrain provided shelter from the French automatic weapons. This was followed by a direct assault against the unfinished blockhouse, which was taken by successive waves of grenadiers, communist troops armed only with hand grenades. They blew up first the wire and bamboo obstacles and then killed the BAR teams. Scores of the grenadiers died or were wounded in the attempt, but the following waves jumped into the position over the bodies of their dead or dying comrades, unquote. Despite those attacks, Muang Chen still held out at 10 o'clock, more than three hours later, having bought, hopefully, enough time for the rest of the French. Payroll gathered what was left of his men, booby-trapped his last bunker, and made for a path that they'd just recently macheted out of the jungle, betting that it would be unknown to the Viet Minh. At dawn, the survivors found that they'd lost 40 Thai tribesmen and one of their four Frenchmen, and that they would lose more in the 12-day chase between them and the 300 men the Viet Minh had sent after them, covering 200 kilometers of jungle, 8,000-foot mountains, and river crossings, which were particularly difficult given that Payroll had never learned to swim. On the third day, the group ran out of food, and the Thai tribesmen began foraging manioc roots and wild corn out of the jungle. Payroll called in on French frequencies on his one remaining radio at every stop, but to no avail. That is, until one evening, quote, a French voice replied and indicated the map coordinates to a drop zone to the north of their present march route. A hot debate ensued. 
Did the message come from one of the French long-range commando groups, the GCMA, permanently operating behind communist lines, which had often hacked out a small secret airfield in the jungle, through which they could fly out wounded and receive supplies? Or was the message a trap set up by the Viet Minh, which they used to lure French aircraft within the range of a communist flak battery, or to induce French supply aircraft to parachute them supplies destined for commando groups or for stragglers such as they were? Payroll finally made the decision, unpopular at the time, not to respond to the call, and not to identify his own party. It turned out later that he had been right. The transmitter had been a communist trap, unquote. When they neared the final crest before the river on the 11th day of their flight, Payroll's men stumbled on a group of Viet Minh camped along the path. Payroll and his tie stood frozen for five hours, waiting for the Viet Minh to move on, which they did, without incident. The men fell more than climbed down that last slope, but even as they were contemplating the crossing of the river, a Thai tribesman from a nearby village appeared and stopped them. Quote, you cannot pass during the daytime. You must go back into the trees. There are many Viet Minh patrols all along the river, but your men are on the other side. You stay here till nightfall. I will come back with rice for you and guide you. Can he be trusted? The Thai themselves did not know. The Viets pay high premiums for French stragglers, particularly for their weapons and most of all for their radio sets. The prizes for the men would make the tribesmen a rich man for life. But Payroll and his men were too weak to care. By nightfall, the tie was back with a basket of gluey rice, the standard food staple of the mountaineers. The men wolfed down the food, drinking the muddy water of the river. The tribesmen, however, warned Payroll against attempting to cross that night. The French are no longer close to the river, and there are Viet Minh patrols on the other side also. But tomorrow I will know where to cross. I will find you rafts to cross over. You cannot swim the river. It is too swift. The men nearly cried with frustration. To be so close to safety and yet to be unable to reach it was almost more than they could bear. But they had no choice. Once more, they bedded down on the cold and moist jungle floor. On the following day, a little moraine reconnaissance plane circled the river. Unable to contain themselves, Payroll and his men walked out into the open, shouting and waving the tricolor from Wang Chen, which they had carried with them. The plane swooped low and dropped a message canister. Saw you. Put away that flag and stay out of sight. We'll notify buddies opposite you. Bonne chance. On the evening of that day, Payroll and his men crossed over in makeshift rafts, which they had found near the riverbank, thanks to the faithful Thai tribesmen. Still dragging their weapons and radio set, they made the crossing without incident. Payroll lost his field glasses and his shoes in the process, as a sort of propitiatory gift to the river gods. Dark shadows stepped out of the forest near the point where they landed. One last pang of insane fear, a grabbing for tommy guns and hand grenades. Then the familiar French voices reached them. They were a rescue column from the nearby post of Muang Bu, which had been alerted to their presence by the Moraine reconnaissance plane. But now the pent-up emotions of the past two weeks, the nervous and physical exhaustion of the hell through which they had just survived, caught up with them. Payroll and his men collapsed on the spot, crying like children, unable to walk another step. They had been given up for dead long ago by everyone, and Big Eared had already requested posthumous citations for their brave rearguard fight at Mong Chen. Of the 84 men who had defended that post, 16 reached the Black River and Master Sergeant Payroll still carried his champagne bottle, unquote. Weeks earlier, the French forces along the ridge had made their escape and crossed the Black River. But they were, shortly after Payroll's arrival, pulled back further still, to two airheads at Lai Chao and Na San, two tiny spots of blue on the French High Command's maps, isolated in an ocean of red which now extended from the Chinese border in the northeast over the Red River, over Nagia Lo, over the Black River, and into Laos. Jap had repeated the border offensive, and this time he'd done it with barely any casualties of his own. The airhead at Na San, which the French would heavily reinforce, rather than evacuating completely, proved a tough nut to crack. 
So rather than repeating the costly attacks of the border offensive, Japs' forces surrounded it, and the bulk of them moved on. Coincidentally, far to the west of Nassan, and 18 days after payroll reached the river, the Viet Minh overran a tiny French post and airfield, defended by a similarly small Laotian infantry unit, located in the valley of Dien Bien Phu. Jap was now posed to strike into Laos proper, an area that the French had about as well defended as the Nigil Low Ridge, which is to say, almost not at all. Laos was all highlands, nearly impenetrable for the French, not easily but more easily traversed by the Viet Minh, and of almost no strategic value. But if the French were to maintain the illusion of a united Indochina, then, the high command thought, though I think Delatra would not have, Laos would have to be defended. In the meantime, the steamrolling of French forces in fully a third of Tonkin, especially the decisive, rapid, aggressive storming and taking of the ridgeline, despite Bigard's elite paratroop battalion, had done no favors for French morale. Quote, a dispirited French reserve officer summed up the feeling of many. It looks as though from now on, the Indo-Chinese war is to be a permanent nightmare. This is the AKC presenting a review of 1952. In Malaya, striking back at the communist terrorists, British troops under Sir Gerald Templer kept up their ceaseless war. In the thick jungle where the going is really tough, our men, among them the first Cameronians, have forced a decline in the terrorists' activities by hitting them hard and often. In Korea, United Nations forces continued their offensive against the Reds. Blasting the enemy with everything they got, our men held their own magnificently against superior odds. The British boys, among them national servicemen, put up a great show that won the respect of their fighting comrades from other lands. In June, United Nations troops, including a contingent of the King Shropshire Light Infantry, went into Koji Island prison camp to break up rioting Reds who had formed illegal courts in their compounds to murder anti-communist prisoners. After tough battles lasting many days, the Reds were finally subdued. Now at this point, French Commander-in-Chief Raoul Salon, seeing the threat to the Laotian highlands and unable for the moment to put much in the way of men in front of it, decided that he would try something else. Instead of halting Jap's forces that were racing, if you put your peace sign left hand's index finger back on the table right now, peace sign, remember, peace sign, left hand, index finger on the table, despite the forces that were racing around the area between your knuckles and your wrist towards your thumb and beyond, what he would try to do is stab into the middle of them, seizing supplies and cutting their logistics. This operation, which was called Lorraine, would move up the Red River, the inside of your index finger, launched out of Hanoi at the crotch, in the river valley to the northeast of the Nagia Low Ridge. It was not a bad plan. French strength was concentrated in the delta, so it made sense not to try to somehow project that strength to faraway Laos, but to hit close to home and close to the delta. Likewise, the roads weren't great, but they were better there near the delta than in the highlands, and Raoul Salon, the French CNC, could use his wickedly fast mobile groups to make the thrust. Now, the problem with that pretty good plan was that by this point, Jap knew what game he was playing. 
Fall points out in a footnote that since the French couldn't move at night for fear of ambush, any move they made was quickly spotted and reported by Viet Minh cadres in the Delta. The only way that the French could achieve surprise was by great speed, by literally outrunning the speed of communication for the Viet Minh. So far, so good. They're going to use the mobile group. It's fast. Maybe that'll work. But after years of this, Jap also knew exactly how many men were available for these big operations, how many that the French could pull away from anywhere else. And what's more, he knew how many men had to be left behind along the route to maintain the main force's line of supply. So the Viet Minh could calculate as a near mathematical certainty how far the French could go with any given thrust and how long that they could stay there. So when Jap got word of Lorraine, he ran the numbers, he looked at his maps, and rather than doubling back with his main forces in the highlands, he broke off a few thousand men and left them in the French path, with orders to stop the French forces from reaching Yen Bai, a main center of supply for the Viet Minh, which was farther than the French were planning to go anyway, at all costs, and to expect no more men or supplies from anywhere. Now, Jap's commanders by this point had learned the same lessons that he had, and they just bet straight out on the numbers that the French would never reach anywhere important anyway. And they spent what time they had just getting any supplies along the French route out of eyesight, moving it off basically 500 yards into the jungle. On October 29th, the French attack, made up of more than 30,000 men, with tanks, Dinosaur boats, paratroops, planes, and every other accoutrement of Western war, barreled over a hundred miles into Viet Minh territory, taking, for their pains, a couple of supply depots, and encountering Soviet-made trucks for the first time. The Viet Minh just let them come, setting up along the route they'd taken and would have to take back, rather than trying to blunt the thrust itself. As easily predicted from every other fight we've heard about in this war, Lorraine went from quickly and almost with no resistance, taking its objectives directly into a grueling retreat through ambush after narrow gorge after river crossing. The hundred miles that Lorraine had traveled in a couple of days cost nearly a month to return over, with the last bridgeheads and installations blown up on the 1st of December. The operation had consumed something like 1,200 Frenchmen killed, wounded, or missing, fixed all French mobile reserves in place from October to December, and done nothing at all to halt Jap's advance into Laos. It seems to me to be this thing again, that Jap was thinking at every moment how to win his political war. What did Laos do for him militarily? Well, as little as it did for the French, that is, nothing. But politically, it made the war seem even more hopeless to the French, especially back home. Made the French look as though they weren't really defending all of Indochina. And looping back to the military side, forced the French, because of those political questions, to spend their scant forces in these far-flung operations that he could then grind down on the retreat. On the French side, as I was reading Fall's book for the first time, more than a year ago, I just kept thinking, how easy to go into, or how easy to continue a war without ever sitting down to think systematically about how to defeat an enemy who fights entirely differently than you. And I thought about it when I looked at Jap leaving these units behind to blunt the French attack however they could. Now from Fall, quote, This ruthless procedure of letting each unit carry its own responsibilities to the utmost was one of the hallmarks of Viet Minh command practice, and always worked to their fullest advantage. On two other occasions, when the French high command hit hard one Viet Minh unit in the hope of drawing off other communist units from their initial objectives, 
the French found to their dismay that the enemy commander never used fresh reserves merely to cover the withdrawal of already expended troops. This was also the case in Operation Lorraine, unquote. Now, what seems like the pitilessness of applying the sunk cost fallacy to warfare makes the Viet Minh so much less romantic than the French, and as a corollary, so much more successful in their war effort. Jap knew that because of French firepower, throwing good troops after bad was always going to be more of a gesture than a strategy, and he just did not do it. Now, as Lorraine was ending in the last days of November, before its actual end on the 1st of December, Jap and the French were going through one last lesson that would govern the rest of the war. The French, if we remember back, had evacuated the highlands except for two airheads, two fortified positions supplied by air at Lai Chau and Na San. Now, Na San was an isolated little town in the middle of a plain in the highlands. Jap had surrounded it and moved on back in October, but come November he was ready to wipe out this little island of the French. Now, airhead is the word we use in English, meant to correspond to the word beachhead. That is, a foothold from which the French could project power. They called it an airland base. If the problem was always maintaining those road links through the jungle to those bases, like Hoa Bin, that they wanted to use as a meat grinder, these roads that were so vulnerable to the Viet Minh, then why not try the whole thing, the whole Hoa Bin thing, but supplied from the air instead of the road? Well, that was Na San. Jap at this point made his last mistake of the French-Indochina War, thinking that, like the border forts in 1950, Na San would be tough to take, but cut off from land links to the Delta by hundreds of miles, and at the absolute limit of French air power, it would be take a bull. Jap made three separate attacks at the end of November, unsupported by the massive artillery fires that he had used on the border, maybe because the pieces were already far ahead into Laos leaving 6,000 Vietnamese dead and who knows how many wounded, before the DRVN's commander-in-chief decided to just go back to surrounding the post. I've got another French army film about Na San that's about 10 minutes long in the show notes. You'll get to see some interesting stuff, from Colonel Jean Gilles, who ran the fort, to the amazingly antique-looking French uniforms, to the insanely slow way that the French planes seem to fly around the field. The text under the video, if you translate it, is some Marine Le Pen reactionary BS, so uh, don't translate it and uh, ignore it. Now, the importance of those three failed attacks at Na San in the war was that the French got the wrong idea about the defensibility of an airland base, an airhead. And Jap figured out that no matter how far the French seemed to be from their centers of power, the next time that he had this opportunity, preparations would make the thing absolutely sure. The French, in the short term, saw Nassan as a turnaround in the initiative of the fight for the Highlands, which it wasn't, seeing as Nassan still did nothing at all to impede Jap's advance into Laos, and they celebrated. Quote, the usually frugal French commissary immediately ordered a shipment of Australian beefsteaks, fried potatoes, vegetables, fresh bread, Algerian wine, and 3,000 bottles of champagne, one bottle for every four men in the embattled camp, that is Nassan. French Vietnamese troops got frozen meat, dried fish, and rice, while the North Africans received wine, live sheep, and goats, all brought in by airlift. In the underground mess, Gilles passed out cigars and liquors to his staff and declared, We've done a nice job here. While in Hanoi, officers celebrated by dining sumptuously at La Manoir in the Hotel Metropole, or dancing with the taxi girls at the Ritz and the Paramount. The disaster at Nguyen Lo and the collapse of Lorraine seemed all but forgotten. An official spokesman declared, Nassan is no longer besieged. We have recovered the initiative in the Thai country, unquote. 
And the reason I include all that is just, again, how can you hope to win when you fight like this? All of those French celebrations, flying in goats, and it's all, it's all romantic or, or even heartwarming. But the Viet Minh, still in the jungle, still living on a handful of rice from the bags around their necks, as Captain Willard says at the outset of Apocalypse Now, every minute I stay in Saigon, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. Saigon. Shit. I'm still only in Saigon. Every time I think I'm gonna wake up back in the jungle. When I was home after my first tour, it was worse. said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. I'm here a week now. Waiting for a mission. Getting softer. I stay in this room, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. Each time I looked around, the walls moved in a little tighter. On that note too, the how can you win with such luxury note, it might be time to mention the BMCs, the Bordel Mobile de Campagne, the Mobile Campaign Bordellos. This is another section where if I say quote without a direct attribution, it's coming from Bernard Fall, in this case from Street Without Joy. Quote, the French army, like all other armies in the world, was to make its own contribution to the love life of the country, but perhaps in more variegated ways than any other army. First of all, there was that hallowed institution of French colonial forces, the BMC. Originally, the three initials had stood for Bataillon Medical de Campagne, Medical Field Battalion, but in the course of things had become attached to another institution whose French name is Bordel Mobile de Campagne, or Mobile Field Brothel. Over the years, the problem as to whether or not to abolish the institution has found partisans on both sides of the question. On the negative side, the argument is that which is used against any type of legalized prostitution. It is basically immoral, and it does not cut down on venereal disease. On the other side of the argument, and thus far in the French army at least, and he's writing in the 50s, it has withstood all attacks. 
The BMC has the advantages of providing the soldiers with a controlled sexual release, thus cutting down on desertions, on rapes of hapless girls of the surrounding civilian population, and also on venereal disease, since both the soldiers and the girls of the BMCs are checked regularly. As to the immorality issue, the girls themselves are volunteers, usually from the Willard Nail tribe, whose beautiful women have made it a centuries-old tradition of serving as prostitutes throughout North Africa, until they had assembled sufficient amounts of money for their dowry. Once they have their dowry, they return to their villages, settle down with the hometown boys, and become devoted family mothers ever after." Unquote. It appears, moreover, that this custom, wherein the women descended unescorted to surrounding villages to dance and otherwise sell themselves, predated the arrival of Islam in North Africa. And what's more, Falls got it wrong on one point here. The women weren't assembling dowries that would be turned over to the men, but independent fortunes that they would hang on to within those new marriages. Lawrence Morgan, an anthropologist who spent some time with the Uled Nail in the 1950s, wrote that the men of the tribe were on board with every part of this arrangement. From one Uled Nail man himself, quote, Our wives, knowing what love is and having wealth of their own, will marry only the man that they love, and unlike the wives of other men, will remain faithful to death, thanks be to Allah, unquote. Fall's description other than the dowries is, as far as I can tell, totally legit. As for their eagerness to serve in the BMCs versus in their homeland, apparently the colonial regime in Algeria, the French colonial regime, had subjected the women of the Willard Nail to ruinous taxation and licensing fees. The BMCs were an opportunity to get back in the game, as it were. Fall says that during his military service in the Second World War, he'd been with a Moroccan division whose attached BMC had made it the envy of all of its American neighbors. He says, too, that Patton was toying with the idea of setting one up, but abandoned the idea when he considered how much the, quote, ruckus kicked up by the outraged wives and mothers of America, unquote, would slow down the war effort. Quote, in Indochina, the BMCs functioned admirably well, and it made for a pleasant change in the monotony of an army convoy, all of a sudden to spot a two-ton truck loaded with the Willard Nail in their gaily-colored Algerian garb, shouting jokes at the soldiers. The BMCs would travel with units in the combat zones. For that matter, all of Indochina was combat zone, and some of the girls died heroically, serving as emergency nurses under fire. Of course, their presence was pure poison to the women army personnel, as some wags put it, because they constituted unfair competition. And in general, the French army in Indochina kept them pretty much out of sight of American newsmen and officials. Quote within a quote, you can just imagine the howl if some blattermouth comes out with a statement to the effect that American funds are used to maintain bordellos for the French army, unquote, said one colonel. As it was, the girls didn't cost the army one penny anyway, since the men paid them, at standard tariff rates, for their services, unquote. More than once, though, the women of the BMC ended up in danger not because the whole country was effectively a war zone, but by choice. I mentioned in the last section that Nassan and Lai Chao had been left as airheads behind Jap's advance into Laos. The French, in one of the most French maneuvers of the war, airlifted a BMC into the embattled post at Lai Chao. Thirty miles north of Lai Chao was a tiny outpost named Sing Ho, meant to cover the jungle path leading south. Basically a group of men detailed to sit in the jungle and radio as they were being overrun. The morale officer at Lai Chao, one Lieutenant Laurent from Martinique, apparently decided that the men at Sing Ho, quote, richly deserved their share of earthly joys, unquote. He called the women of the BMC together and asked if two of them would be willing to walk that 30-mile jungle path with an escort of GMCA commandos. Half of the BMC volunteered, two suited up in fatigues and boots, and they made the 30 miles in two days of straight marching. 
Quote, they did fall into an ambush on the return trip, but behaved as coolly under fire as the seasoned troopers they were, and returned to Lai Chao to the cheers of the garrison. Lieutenant Laurent wrote up two ringing citations for the girls, recommending them for the Croix de Guerre, and forwarded them to northern headquarters in Hanoi. But Hanoi, mindful of the kind of flavor this episode would give to our quote-unquote crusade, told Laurent in no uncertain terms that the awarding of the two medals would be quote-unquote inopportune at this time. We were all greatly disappointed, for we felt that the girls had richly earned them, unquote. A BMC likewise found itself present in the trap at Dien Bien Phu, and within days of the battle's beginning, they'd abandoned all of their normal positions to work as auxiliary nurses, something that's missed in virtually every American account of the battle, which credits the also exceptionally brave nurse Genevieve de Gaillard Tarabou as the only woman in the garrison. I'm not sure what to think about the BMCs in the Willa Nail, or even what to make of my own clear fascination with the antiquated heroism of the French Expeditionary Force, given that the expedition that it was involved in was pretty clearly morally wrong. I think maybe I can just say that The Street Without Joy is an incredible book, that it details battles and more and better than battles, the stories of the soldiers, of the women, at newspapers, in uniform, and by the sides of the male characters, of the reporters, and of the country, and that I will never have the time to cover in this show. That it's a riveting book, that it's compassionate, and that it's worth your time. And with Bernard Fall, that, quote, Many of the soldiers who were wounded in the battle at Dien Bien Phu will never forget the soft touch of a little brown hand or the guttural French of the Willard Nail, doing their rounds in the hell of the underground dressing stations. It remains a matter of conjecture whether the element of vice which they added to the war was not outweighed by the element of femininity, even of humanity, which they added to it. Official histories do not like impure heroes, and even less impure heroines, but I, for one, Hope that on the day that when the last war will have been fought and the histories of all wars will have been written, a small scholarly footnote will at least be reserved for the girls of the BMC. Speaking against American involvement, a freshman senator from Massachusetts, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. The reason why the war in Indochina has not had the support of the people of that area and the people of Asia has been that the French have maintained too great a degree of control over the lives of the people. Indochina is an ancient French colony, and even though the French have made gradual concessions to the people, their control is still paramount. And therefore, the communists under Ho Chi Minh are able to claim that they are fighting for independence, and the French appear to be fighting for a maintenance of colonial rule. I therefore believe that before the United States moves in in any degree, that independence must be granted to the people, that the people must support the struggle, because unless, as I said, that support is forthcoming, any intervention by the United States is bound to be futile. It might be handy to spell out at this point how totally screwed the French were. We'll be talking in a minute about how they were just hoping to fight to a draw now, and it might need illustrating, given how well Nassan panned out. In the north, Jap had connected the Chinese border with the Laotian one, giving him freedom to operate across the entire northern two-thirds of Tonkin, while the French huddled in the still heavily infiltrated Red River Delta. French control in Annam had been reduced to small areas around the major cities, and French attempts to clear the coast road, the road known among the French as the Street Without Joy, from which Paul drew the title for his book, had been as incredibly costly as they had been ineffective. Describing one of those operations, Fall says, quote, Basically, the major defect of Operation Camargue was one that was shared by practically all similar operations in the Indochina War. 
No stealing off of an enemy force could be successful unless the proportion of attackers to defenders was 15 or even 20 to 1. For the enemy had in its favor an intimate knowledge of the terrain, the advantage of defensive organization, and the sympathy of the population." Unquote. The French had become barricaded into the largest towns and cities and could only move among them by air, itself more and more threatened by Chinese anti-aircraft weaponry every month, or on long, lonely corridors of Viet Minh-haunted jungle and highland. We haven't heard from Ho Chi Minh here in a while, either, as we wrap up 1952. He had, as Logoval notes, been invisible to the West for quite a while. Rumors periodically came out in the West that he'd been killed by tuberculosis, an assassin, a French bombing raid, or an internal party purge. He was, however, very much alive, and he'd actually spent much of the fall offensive in Moscow and Beijing, drumming up more support the way that Delatre had in Washington. But he was still in the driver's seat, and was far from retreating to a safe, secure seclusion. From Logoval, quote, Early in 1952, a French POW reported, upon being released, that Ho was a highly visible fixture in the area around the headquarters, often seen in the villages, among the farmers in the rice fields, and at cadre gatherings. Dressed in his now standard simple peasant garb, he exhorted one and all to commit fully to the anti-French struggle and to sacrifice everything for the common goal. To avoid detection or capture by the French, Ho moved residence every three or four days and followed a strict fitness regimen. He rose early to do exercises and, after the workday was over, played volleyball or swam. Though now past the age of 60, he could still walk 30 miles a day in difficult mountain terrain with a pack on his back, unquote. And now we move to 1953. Eisenhower, having been elected this past November, was inaugurated in January 1953. He had been content during the campaign to let his military record speak for itself, keeping his promises mostly to a downsizing of America's military expenditures and to an end to the war in Korea. He left all the scummier aspects of the election to his running mate, Richard Nixon, who laid into the Democratic candidate, Adlai Stevenson, as Adlai the Appeaser, possessed of a, quote, PhD from Atchison's College of Cowardly Communist Containment, unquote. Now, to be fair where fairness is due, Ike didn't like much or any of that rhetoric, but he let it pass. Nothing even as strong as that John McCain scolding people who called Barack Obama a Muslim business. He kept himself aloof, which was his whole appeal. Who cared what the man's policies were, except for being tough on communism and getting us out of Korea? He was Ike. He was the hero of D-Day and of the whole American involvement in the Second World War. Ike could be trusted. I think Nixon was pretty much an evil dude. Eisenhower, on the other hand, in the same way that presidents like Barack Obama on backwards to JFK and before, were too inexperienced with the Joint Chiefs and the intelligence services to tell them no, at least at the beginning, resulting in things like the massive amounts of drone strikes in Obama's first term that tailed off afterwards, and the Bay of Pigs for John F. Kennedy. I think Eisenhower was inexperienced the other way around, afraid basically to stick his neck out reining in his party for fear of torpedoing his own campaign. But I think he could have. With his reputation and with the sleazy anti-communist campaign the Republicans had been running on Truman and Acheson for years at that point, nobody, I don't think, was going to beat Ike for president. But Eisenhower did not restrain his lieutenants or his party, and as Logoval says, the red-baiting rhetoric limited Eisenhower's options, and what's worse, and what Logoval doesn't get at, poisoned the tenor of American politics for decades, locking the Democrats as well as the GOP into terrible choices in Vietnam and elsewhere, everyone afraid of being soft on communism, everyone afraid of losing another country like Truman lost China, all of which we covered back in The Kennan Show two shows ago. 
The real mover and shaker in Eisenhower's coming foreign policy, though, was a character we've come to know and loathe over the course of our series on Guatemala and Iran, John Foster Dulles. The son of a Presbyterian minister in New York, Dulles was yet another member of that old American aristocracy. He went as an Ivy League undergraduate with a U.S. delegation to The Hague, and he went even before as a teenager with his former Secretary of State grandfather to dinner parties at the White House. Quote, Foster has been studying to be Secretary of State since he was five years old, unquote, Ike used to joke. His mother agreed, writing when John Foster was only five that, quote, mentally he is remarkable for his age. His logical acumen betokens a career as a thinker. He reasons with a clearness far beyond his age, unquote. From Logoval, quote, her judgment would be borne out time and again in the years to come, as her precocious child excelled at every level of education. Upon completing high school at age 15, he went to Princeton, where he threw himself into his studies and shunned the eating clubs that were the symbols of the school's social success. He could have been popular at Princeton, he used to say, but it would have consumed too much of his time. Devoutly religious, Dulles opted against following his father's path into the ministry and instead went to law school. Family connections, his uncle Robert Lansing was Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State, won him a place on the American delegation to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, where he helped draft policy on German reparations and the war guilt question. In the interwar years, Dulles worked his way up the ladder at Sullivan and Cromwell, a prestigious law firm, all the while deepening his interest in politics and public service. By 1927, he was the firm's sole managing partner and one of the highest paid attorneys in the world, unquote. You may also remember the prominent place enjoyed by Sullivan and Cromwell in the early Guatemala shows. Dulles believed in two things, America's international role and anti-communism. He was active in Republican politics during the war, advising both of Dewey's runs for the presidency. He tried for the Senate in the late 1940s, but had no touch for the people, convincing himself that he'd be better appointed than elected, and he made it to the top of state in 1953 at the age of 65. The Europeans and the rest of America's allies were far from happy about that choice. Dulles was rigidly ideological in a way few people outside of the United States or the Soviet Union managed to be. Sanctimonious, self-righteous, self-assured in his black-and-white views, pretty much to them, and to me, the worst of the American internationalist class. For Eisenhower, though, Dulles could serve as a cover, an insulator, between himself and the Republican right, given that Ike was a conservative in the oldest terms and a centrist in the new ones. He wanted to reduce, not grow, American commitments abroad. He wanted to shrink, not grow, the armed forces. And he wanted to refocus American attention not overseas, but on the homeland. Quote, to the outside world, they presented two sharply different styles. Eisenhower was prudent, pragmatic, modest, easygoing. Dulles bombastic, severe, self-important, socially shy, even gauche. In conversation, the president tended to be plain-spoken, while Dulles sought refuge in intellectual abstractions. They developed a close working relationship, based on mutual respect, if not perhaps deep affection. Behind closed doors, Dulles sometimes revealed a capacity for flexible and pragmatic thought that would have amazed outsiders, and even more shocking, a sense of humor. He also showed he knew who was boss. Despite the claims of later detractors, he had no inclination to get ahead of the president on foreign policy, for he understood that his power derived from Eisenhower's confidence in him. From the start, he and Eisenhower conferred frequently, in person or on the phone, or when the peripatetic Secretary of State was abroad, via telegram. Whenever their schedules permitted, they got together privately for a late afternoon drink at the White House to exchange views, unquote. Which, as much as I dislike Dulles, seems to be a pretty good way to work this thing out, this relationship between the President and the Secretary. For a very long time, the Secretary of State was understood to be the number two man or woman in the government, and it is just not that way anymore. 
Now, it's, I don't know, maybe the chief of staff? The national security advisor, if you're doing it wrong. It's pretty telling, popular conception-wise, that Leo McGarry in the show The West Wing was more of a character than the president, but I can't for the life of me remember who they pulled in as Secretary of State. And actually, I just went in and looked it up. I mean, not during the recording, but when I wrote this section. He's nobody. He appears in like five episodes. A few of those times in profile as a no-name actor in a crowd. So there you go. What was less positive about Dulles and his relationship with Eisenhower was that while the president was focused on reducing American commitments and expenditures, he understood those commitments in the terms he'd always used, military interventions and occupations, wars and open alliances. Dulles got involved, possibly because his brother Allen was the head of the CIA, with covert operations early on, and he was unerringly effective in convincing Eisenhower that these little coups and pushes and assassinations were the cheaper, cleaner way to go. The results of that thinking we saw in Iran and Guatemala. Eisenhower came into office in January 1953 determined to come through on his one rock-solid campaign promise, which was to end the Korean War, which had been stalemated for two years by that point. But his and Dulles' race for more and better negotiations with Kim Il-sung made them even more loath to open themselves up to soft-on-communism attacks by Joe McCarthy or the Democrats by doing the same anywhere else in Asia. And so, even as they pushed for more concessions at Panmunjom, they told the French that they had to stay in their war. All this despite Eisenhower's better judgment. He doubted the possibility of victory in Indochina for years. He wrote in his diary in March 1951, after a meeting in Paris with Delatre, that, quote, The French have a knotty problem in Indochina. The campaign out there is a draining sore in their side. Yet if they quit and Indochina falls to commies, it is easily possible that the entire Southeast Asia and Indonesia will go, soon to be followed by India. That prospect makes the whole problem one of interest to us all. I'd favor heavy reinforcement to get the thing over at once, but I'm convinced that no military victory is possible in that kind of theater. Even if Indochina were completely cleared of communists, right across the border is China with inexhaustible manpower." Unquote. Logoval suspects that Ike resolved the tension in those last two sentences by putting faith in the progress that Delatre made during his year in Indochina. But I think Eisenhower was smarter than that, which makes a stick-with-it-hard line on French withdrawal hard to reconcile. Maybe just keep the French in there until a Korean-type stalemate results, and then just foot the relatively inexpensive bill indefinitely. Who knows at this point? It bears exploring how it was that Ike thought Dulles's soon-to-come interventions or support for wars like the one in Indochina could possibly be part of a strategy to reduce American expenditures and commitments abroad. But it's actually integral. The United States the previous summer had won up the Soviets in the nuclear struggle, detonating the Ivy Mike shot, a thermonuclear bomb, a fusion device 450 times more powerful than Hiroshima. With their regained nuclear superiority, Eisenhower felt that he could draw down American conventional forces somewhat. The Soviets had dozens of divisions on the borders of Europe, sure. But if any contest was going to be a nuclear contest, then there would, hopefully, be no contest at all. And if there were one, more tanks or soldiers in West Germany would hardly make a difference. Likewise, while the U.S. might end up spending what seemed like a tremendous amount of money on the French or some other anti-communist effort overseas, the costs to us were much, much lower than sending our own men. The political costs of getting French boys versus American boys killed abroad, which as we've seen were the more important in a war like the one France was waging in Indochina, were even smaller. From Logoval, quote, The new administration radiated purpose and resolution on Vietnam. Harry Truman urged them on, telling the president-elect in November that the problem was one of insufficient French aggressiveness in the field, 
and of fence-sitting on the part of the Vietnamese, and that Indochina was an urgent matter for the administration to address. From Saigon, the reports were downbeat as the year turned, expressing newfound pessimism regarding the prospects of the anti-Ho Chi Minh forces. The Viet Minh held the initiative throughout Tonkin, and even controlled much of the Red River Delta. Should the highlands in the northwest be lost, as we have seen they were being lost, the communists would have an open shot at Laos and Thailand, unquote. Eisenhower didn't let on to anything but the domino aspect of that analysis in his first State of the Union, telling the public that support for the French and the defense of Southeast Asia was the front in the war on communism. And while nobody believed the domino theory as strongly, or at all, in private as they espoused it in public, they were indeed determined to support the French effort. The U.S. had already provided more than 139,000 metric tons of supplies and equipment to the French, including artillery, ships, and planes, but Eisenhower's administration was holding out the promise of more if the French could just come up with a workable plan for victory. One last thing to note here. That rhetoric, from the idea that communism was one monolithic block, not individual nationalisms, like we talked about in the Kennan show, to the ludicrous domino theory, where the internal politics of one country would necessarily cascade into another, as if the Canadian elections had any effect on our own, to the oft-repeated idea that Vietnam itself was somehow the key to the entire world's struggle against the Reds, all of it never had to be true to be important. It was that administration after administration sold those ideas to the public until they became effectively true in the minds of the American people, in the sense that any administration, like all the ones before, that knew better, and actually decided to act on that knowledge, would never survive the turnaround in American public opinion. From Francis Fitzgerald, quote, Whether or not the American officials actually believed their own propositions, they repeated them year after year with a dogged persistence and a perfect disregard for all contradictory evidence. In the course of a decade, these propositions were transmuted into fact. In fact, that is, for large sections of the American public. In fact, for the AID economists promoting such schemes as the cooperation of South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand on a Mekong River development project. Fact in those realms of the Pentagon, where systems analysts planned to end the insurgency with electronic barriers circling South Vietnam. For most Americans, Southeast Asia came to look like the most complicated place in the world. And naturally enough, for the American official effort to fit the new evidence into the old official assumptions was something like the effort of the 17th century astronomers to fit their observations of the planets into the Ptolemaic theory of the universe, unquote. Opportunities to reverse that course would arrive as early as that year. Joseph Stalin died on the 5th of March, 1953, and the USSR, eventually under Nikita Khrushchev, immediately moved in a more moderate direction in its domestic politics, and, despite Khrushchev's later rhetoric, abroad as well. Feeling the Soviet thaw, Ho Chi Minh reached out feelers too. A Swedish journalist named Sven Lofgren was reporting out of Paris in 1953. When he realized that all of the parliamentary debates were going on without any actual idea of the Viet Minh and DRVN positions, he decided to send off a set of questions to Ho Chi Minh, and to his great surprise, Ho responded and sent them right back. From La Couture's biography, and quoting directly from the response from Ho Chi Minh, quote, The war in Vietnam was launched by the French government. The Vietnamese people are obliged to take up arms and have heroically struggled for nearly eight years against the aggressors to safeguard our independence and the right to live freely and peacefully. Now, if the French colonialists continue their aggressive war, the Vietnamese people are determined to carry on the patriotic resistance until final victory. However, if the French government has drawn a lesson from the war they have been waging these last years, and want to negotiate an armistice in Vietnam, and to solve the Vietnam problem by peaceful means, 
the people and government of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam are ready to meet this desire, unquote. Ho was also playing the diplomatic game with the U.S. at every opportunity. An American communist, Joseph Starobin of the Daily Worker, interviewed Ho in the early days of 1953. Ho, as Logovall reports, while he couldn't really steer that we're-not-really-communist line anymore, what with the recognition he'd received from the Soviet bloc and the supplies coming in from China, Ho still did his best to make the conversation not about Vietnam, but about the United States. Quote, Ho used every chance to turn the conversation to things American. He reminisced about seeing the Statue of Liberty in Harlem as a young man, and asked Robin why the supposedly anti-colonial Americans would supply bombers to Imperial France for use against innocent Vietnamese. Yet again, as 1953 opened, U.S. plans and policies were very much on Ho Chi Minh's mind. The battle for the presidency of the United States nears its climax, and tension grows in the rival camps. At his headquarters, Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican candidate, makes his way onto the platform to the acclaim of his supporters as the news comes in from the 48 states that he's in the lead. Earlier in the day, President Truman recorded his vote for Governor Stevenson, the Democrat candidate. He's been pulling no punches in his attacks on Eisenhower, but Ike looks pretty confident of victory. Over in Illinois, Stevenson's own state, Ike's opponent looks far from gloomy himself as he goes to the polls. At the Stevenson headquarters, they aren't so happy. Eisenhower is steadily forging ahead, and it looks like the end for Stevenson. Electric signs flash the news, Ike's in, and Bedlam breaks out amongst the Republican supporters as they hear of their landslide victory. It's a very different picture at Stevenson's HQ. Now the governor, still composed and self-controlled, speaks of his defeat. I have sent the following telegram to General Eisenhower at the Commodore Hotel in New York. The people have made their choice and I congratulate you. Asked about running for presidency in 1956, Stevenson echoes with good-natured surprise. Examine that man's head. Republican celebrations reach their peak when the president-elect, with his wife Mamie, soon to become America's first lady, tells his supporters of Stevenson's telegram conceding defeat. Just as I came down to the ballroom, I replied to that telegram as follows. I thank you for your courteous and generous message, recognizing the intensity of the difficulties that lie ahead. It is clearly necessary that men and women of goodwill of both parties forget the political strife through which we have passed and devote themselves to the single purpose of a better future. This, I believe, they will do. Dwight Eisenhower becomes president by the greatest popular vote ever given a White House candidate. As the shouting dies, he and his family leave for a holiday in Georgia. There he will prepare for his new post. America has shown her confidence in Eisenhower. And Britain, too, believes he will not fail in the tremendous task ahead. Well, with the U.S. already engaged in negotiations with Korea, however, the French would not be afforded their own opportunity to make peace. 
Talks had been ongoing since the stalemate began in Panmunjom, getting nowhere until Eisenhower came into office, and they finally concluded in July 1953, ending the American part in the conflict on the 27th. Although, as has been in the news recently, the North and the South were still technically at war. As soon as we ended the Chinese commitment in Korea, however, Beijing shipped the heavier ordnance that they'd been using on that peninsula south to serve the Vietnamese. As Bernard Fall summed up the situation, quote, The Indochina War became deadlocked politically in 1948, when the French political hesitations failed to make the Vietnamese nationalists an effective counterforce in the psychological struggle. The war became strategically hopeless when the Chinese Reds arrived on Indochina's borders late in 1949, and China thus became a quote-unquote sanctuary where Viet Minh forces could be trained and refitted. And it was lost militarily as of 1953, when the ceasefire in Korea allowed the concentration of the whole Asian communist war effort on the Indochinese theater, unquote. But everyone struggled on. In March 1953, shortly after Stalin's death, the French headed to the United States to see what could be done about hashing out those differences. Prime Minister René Meyer, Overseas Minister Bideau, and High Commissioner Jean Letourneau went to Washington to hash out future cooperative policy with Eisenhower and Dulles. The U.S. had, in its last two years of its war with Korea, which was at that moment very visibly winding down to a close, publicly maintained that it wasn't pushing for victory, but to maintain a position of strength from which to negotiate. High Commissioner Letourneau told his U.S. counterparts that that was exactly what the French wanted to do in their war. The Americans took that, heard it, and then told the French that no, what they wanted in exchange for any more aid, and in the case of more aid, much more aid, a plan to win. Jean Letourneau responded straight out that it was no longer the policy of his government to seek victory in Indochina. Dulles and Truman kept working on the French, though, and the French, desperate for the aid they needed, they thought, to squeak over the finish line into a so-called honorable peace, came around. The plan they drafted in a couple of days, without any contact with the French military authorities in Indochina, was named after High Commissioner Letourneau. A massive expansion of the Vietnamese National Army would allow light battalions, so-called light battalions, of Viet troops to occupy Annam and Cochin China freeing up all of the French mobile groups and other garrison troops for operations in the north. American military planners, looking at the practical impossibility of making the Vietnamese army that large or that effective that quickly, and doubting that the Viet Minh would oblige them by waiting around while they did it, were not optimistic about the plan. The French weren't too worried about those shortcomings, because they weren't really worried anymore about winning the war, just securing enough U.S. assistance for long enough to get to a point where they felt they could negotiate. American politicians, meanwhile, perennially optimistic, saw the plan as the best they could do for the moment, hoping that they would cajole the French into something more aggressive with more time, more battles, and more imported weaponry. They signed the Letourneau plan in April, the same month that Jap invaded Laos in earnest, hoping to, and indeed succeeding, to spread the French out across nearly the whole of Indochina, rather than just Vietnam. Jap quickly overran the lightly defended country with his own troops and with the men of the Laotian Communist Party, the Path at Lao. By early May, the French outposts on the Plain of Jars, well, well inside of Laotian territory, and the royal capital, versus the other one in the south, Wang Prabang, were adrift in a sea of combined communist guerrillas. For Eisenhower and Dulles, at least rhetorically, the potential loss of Laos became yet another hysterical domino. If Laos were lost, Ike warned the National Security Council, the United States would, quote, likely lose the rest of Southeast Asia and Indonesia. The gateway to India, Burma, and Thailand would be open, unquote. Jap, of course, had much more realistic objectives than the conquest of all of Southeast Asia. 
He wanted to spread the French out, spook them into committing more resources to an area Jap wasn't really interested in, i.e. central Laos, and to set up some limited political infrastructure along the border, allowing for easier infiltration of central and southern Vietnam, the precursor to the well-known Ho Chi Minh Trail. Jap had his eyes on the prize. Neither he nor Ho had ever hoped to make themselves leaders of Indochina. They were looking to their own country. Jap pulled his troops back to the border areas by May. Eisenhower, however, saw the invasion as a serious blow to the French. In June, he spoke to the National Security Council and the U.S. ambassador in Paris about what needed to be done to stave off disaster. First was that the Paris government had to guarantee independence to the Associated States of Indochina the second the war was over. This, they hoped, would get the inhabitants of the region fired up for the fight against the communists. It was also what the French had tried to avoid all along, but at this point, when they weren't hopeful about keeping any part of their old colony, they might have been more amenable. The second thing was to put new leadership on the ground. General and Commander-in-Chief Raoul Salon hadn't been doing too badly, really, but Eisenhower, who had met and been impressed by Delatra, was, I think, putting his faith in new blood. The French, who had been fending off interference of just this kind since the Americans first got involved, now felt themselves backed into a corner. The roles had reversed, the French trying to end the war as quickly and amicably as possible, and the Americans pushing to keep it going indefinitely. The French president, who under the Fourth Republic fills sort of the role of the king, he is elected, he doesn't run the government like the prime minister, but he represents the country and wields slightly more power than a modern king. Anyway, the president, Vincent Auriol, told Letourneau at the end of the spring that, quote, I am more and more worried about the Americans' overbearing attitude. Their involvement in the Indochina war is a catastrophe, unquote. But the U.S. was not to be resisted. The Letourneau plan was to go into effect, and the French started looking for someone to replace General Raoul Salon. The Eisenhower National Security Council also drafted and adopted NSC 149-2 in late April, which suggested direct American involvement in the case of Chinese aggression, or some quote-unquote basic change in the situation. The French government made the independence announcement in July 1953, and settled on the new choice of CNC shortly after, picking one Henri Navarre, currently head of French NATO forces in Central Europe, who had had zero Indochina experience. And of the other two choices, one was dying and the other, General Jean-Étienne Valouy, was hated by the Vietnamese because of his involvement in the Haiphong and Hanoi attacks in November 1946, which we've heard about. Washington, happy with these changes, signed off on a combined commitment to the Letourneau plan and even greater military assistance. the communist world in mourning the passing of Joseph Stalin. From a saluting base on Lenin's tomb, he reviewed each year on Red Army Day men of the Soviet armed forces. Army, Navy and Air Force all had been fostered by Stalin himself. Until now, they have become one of the greatest military powers in the world. His people regarded as a god this man who was born the son of a shoemaker, for above all, he became a star to guide them to a more prosperous way of life. In return, they gave him their undying devotion and accepted his every word as law. But one thing Stalin did not give them, their freedom. And that, to countries outside the Iron Curtain, means all. Over the years, Soviet propaganda built up a picture of Stalin as a kindly man who loved his people. Yet when Lenin died, it was he who destroyed those same people, it is believed nearly seven millions of them, to make his position secure as Russia's dictator. And through the 30 years of his rule, 
he remained unchallenged even by members of the Supreme Council, the Soviet's administrative machine. Of this body, Stalin was the chairman and held the reins so tightly that no decision could be taken without his approval. Thus, none could contest the power he held over 200 million Russian people. Then in the last war, Russia took arms against Nazi Germany and the Grand Alliance was formed. At Yalta, following the collapse of the enemy, the Big Three met, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin, to plan for peace. But Stalin abused the privileges that victory won him and still world peace is threatened by his policy of communist domination. Russia herself has known fear in post-war days. Nine Jewish doctors were accused of murdering Zdanov, once believed to be Stalin's successor. Now Molotov, chief of secret police Beria and Stalin's right-hand man Malenkov are among those tipped as Russia's new ruler. Malenkov, reports indicate, seems the most likely to follow in the steps of his master, probably by methods similar to those adopted by Stalin himself, who had all his rivals liquidated to establish his initial power. Anxiously, the world waits for the name of the new Soviet dictator. Whoever shall occupy the Kremlin follows a man of genius. Yet he was not wholly a great man, for he lacked humanity and the will for peace, the essentials for everlasting greatness. I talked earlier in this show, and have talked in general, about that the Viet Minh were not brainwashed, that by and large they weren't fanatic, and that they managed to capture Vietnamese loyalties much more effectively than any other regime in the South, no matter its international sponsors, was ever able to do. And I don't mean capture loyalties in a negative way, just the opposite. So I want to use Francis Fitzgerald's book Fire in the Lake to try to get at why it was that the Viet Minh, the Vietnamese Communist Party, and the much later National Liberation Front had that success. Quote, The Vietnamese Communist leaders differed from the non-communists only in that they have successfully assimilated the Western conceptual framework and translated it into a form of intellectual organization that their less educated compatriots can understand. And to be clear here, she doesn't mean dumber, she means literally less educated. Like Mao's thoughts, the NLF's three silences and six duties of a party member correspond exactly to pre-existing Confucian precepts. Taken together, they do not form an ideology in the Western sense, but the elements of a Tao, or as the Vietnamese now call it, a style of work, a style of life, unquote. This is getting towards what I talked about a lot in the earlier episodes, that a traditional, highly ordered way of life had partway broken down under the French colonial rule, and that nothing the French, their southern regimes, nor later the Americans did, managed to replace that way of life. The communists, however, saw the problem and formed themselves to fit it. Now Fitzgerald says that the Viet Minh's political training, and she's talking about the NLF in this passage, which will come later, but the techniques and methods were the same was sort of the mental second half of a soldier or a cadre's military or physical preparation. Quote, Brought up within the small, enclosed world of the family, most of the young recruits found it natural to trust one another, to share their food and their complaints, to discuss and to compromise the interests of group action. If that last one sounds like it doesn't agree with the first ones, it doesn't. On a broader scale, they had very little conception of public property or public service. Like the Arvin soldiers, that is, the army of the Southern Republic of Vietnam under the Americans later on, they did not see why they should not intrigue against their superiors or steal food from the villagers. 
The cadres had to spell out everything in detail and show them little by little how their own actions related to the goals of the larger community, unquote. Like I mentioned last show, Fitzgerald writes that a huge part of the education those cadres pursued in military units was to show the men before every mission how their upcoming effort and sacrifice fit into the bigger picture of the war effort, with especially large operations seeing teams from the regional military section come down to teach. Fitzgerald describes the way that the communists endeavored to move the peasant recruit from his old mental landscape of the family and the village into a new one of the unit, the movement, and the nation, thereby adapting him for a new political reality in a way that the French and the Americans had never managed to do. Quote, Party cadres, there were usually three to each battalion, one to each company, would discuss the overall military and political situation and instruct the fighters in the general aims of the revolution. Because most of the soldiers had no previous experience of political discussion, the cadres would start off with simple slogans, songs, riddles, and jokes that illustrated such abstractions as the class struggle in terms that the fighters could understand. In between meetings, they would engage the men in friendly conversation and encourage them to question the points of doctrine and express their feelings about life in the army either directly or by writing poems, articles, or stories for the wall newspaper. Instead of lecturing the fighters, the cadre attempted to draw them out, to deal with their complaints in the open, and finally to coerce the stragglers by means of collective rather than authoritarian pressure." Unquote. Once soldiers had spent some time away from home and in combat, they naturally began to see each other less as strangers and more as sources of support, security, and friendship. Two, following the old village frameworks, every privation they experienced at the beginning of their service, and there were many hardships, they saw initially as a failure of their organization, a failure of the party, or the Viet Minh, or the NLF, to protect and provide for them, the soldier, the same way that starvation at home would have been the fault, the failure of the father. But after some time, NLF, Viet Minh, communist soldiers, they began to see themselves as an elite, one that saw ongoing tough times as signs of its own strength and virtue, and one that showed itself more capable, on and off the battlefield, than either the Kissling soldiers of the southern regimes or the foreign fighters themselves. And American statistics on the NLF that they compiled during the war bore those things out. They showed that recruits tended to defect less and express less dissatisfaction as time went on. If the party managed to keep a peasant on board for a month or two, they usually had them for life. Quote, Though in the light of hindsight, much of the NLF training program must seem to be little more than a thoroughgoing civics course, there was one aspect of it that went beyond all the boundaries which Westerners customarily draw around the concept education. This was the institution of Kim Tao, criticism or self-criticism. The words mean to verify and to discuss. Used previously by the Chinese communists and by the Viet Minh, Kim Tao was a truth game in which every member of the organization from the lowliest soldier to the highest cadre had to participate. In the criticism sessions, held on a regular basis as part of the daily activities, each NLF member had to admit his own failings and give his honest opinion about the conduct of all the other members of the group. Within the sessions, he did not have to fear punishment for his own errors other than the most devastating one of concerted group criticism. Only if he refused to participate would he incur the final penalty of expulsion by the group. But to the extent that Kim Tao was painful, so it was perhaps necessary to the functioning of the entire organization. If the recruits could not strip themselves of their anxieties about each other and the power of the group, they could not begin to work together or to commit themselves to a common cause. Without a real psychological readjustment, their loyalties to any organization, other than that of their own families, would remain only surface deep. 
Given the newcomer's ambivalence about fear of the group and desire to belong to it, the cadres had to strike a delicate balance in their disciplinary measures. As one party manual warned, the criticism must be made in a spirit of mutual comradely affection, helping each other to reform. But criticism in a hostile spirit does harm, causes loss of face, goes too far, etc. Criticism of this kind really causes divisions and prejudices in the party. It is not useful for helping each other correct defects, in a spirit of compassion, to advance together. The knowledge came as a revelation, though one perhaps gradually arrived at, and if he allowed it to, that revelation could change the fighter's life. What mattered now was not the maintenance of face, but the competence to deal with the objective problems that confronted the entire group. By forcing the cadres into conflict and limiting the damage done by it, the Kiem Tao sessions opened up entirely new channels of communication within the NLF, unquote. The Americans in the South never quite managed to create anything like as capable a Vietnamese recruit as the NLF, the Viet Minh, or the Communists. The French, towards the end, when they started the Jonisman of their airborne units, integrating Vietnamese members into them, they approached it. Rather than trying to slot the Vietnamese into a structure that was half-traditional, half-exposed to the world, and totally dominated by a colonial overlord, they tried to make him French, and that came pretty close to working. The French did, however, run into the same sorts of problems as the Americans, especially when they were trying to govern through their subordinate Vietnamese regimes run out of Saigon. This is another last passage from Fitzgerald here. And like last show, imagine every time she says American that she means French. Or even better, imagine that she means Western, since these issues turned up under each power in turn. Quote, Over the years, those American officials concerned with the Saigon government occupied themselves almost exclusively with the development of policies and programs, with organization and reorganization. That the Vietnamese showed much less interest in the programs than in the people who ran them proved a continual source of discomfort to the Americans. This discomfort they manifested in their complaints about the quote-unquote underdevelopment of Vietnamese politics. In part, of course, this American preoccupation with programs and instrumentalities arose out of the ground rules of their involvement in Vietnam. Officially, the U.S. government was not, quote, interfering in Vietnamese domestic politics, unquote. In part, however, it came from the basic American, or Western, view of government as a complex machine. Americans tend to speak of governmental machinery, and to look upon the problem of government as one of programming the machinery correctly to attain the goals desired. For the Americans, it is ideas, principles, and organization that count. Men are replaceable, and their personalities almost incidental to their functions. In Vietnam, it was simply embarrassing that gossip about the Vietnamese generals described the workings of the government better than all of their organizational charts. But the Vietnamese look at government in a very different light. To them, it is not merely one organization among others, but a complete enterprise that comprehends much of what Westerners would consign to personal life and private morality. In looking for a leader, they look not merely for a man with ideas and administrative skills, nor do they, as many Americans assumed, look only for a charismatic figure, a magical authority. They look instead for a man who expresses in his life how the government and the society ought to behave. The Vietnamese communists understood policies and programs as well as anyone else in Vietnam, but they, and in particular Ho Chi Minh, made an effort to present a picture of quote-unquote correct behavior to the people. Dressed usually in shorts and rubber sandals, the North Vietnamese leader lived as simply as a peasant in order to show that his revolution would inaugurate a truly popular regime. The same dress on Lenin would have been sheer affectation, but for Ho Chi Minh and his representatives to the people, it was a necessity. For the Vietnamese do not differentiate between a man's style and his principles, 
between his private and public roles. They looked to the whole man. I began to see again we were, we were um, launched on this uh, enormous war without knowing very much about the country we were in. Did you have the impression, perhaps, that uh, the American military, the American intelligence, had not uh, done its homework, had not uh, read its uh, history, had not studied, uh, well, just from 1954, the Indian Fool, on up to the present? Well, they certainly hadn't learned the lessons of the French War. On the other hand, it really wasn't because uh, they were stupid or badly prepared or that kind of thing. It was that they didn't want to learn those lessons. Uh, if they had, they would have just had to withdraw. You mean they blinded themselves to it uh, on purpose? I think that um, uh, there is far more self-deception than mm -hmm. deception involved. Well, you became acquainted with the French experience, I'm sure, in, in your own research out there. Mm -hmm. What was the turning point? Where did you discover this information? In any particular place? Well, I was lucky enough to be given a book um, by Professor Paul Mus, who had written an extra it's an extraordinary volume on the on the history of the French War. It's called Sociologie d'une Guerre. And uh, I read it when I was there. Mus had um, grown up in Vietnam and he'd come back and uh, uh, was an archaeologist and an ethnologist. Uh, he had uh, talked to Ho Chi Minh. He'd been one of those people who thought that it was possible uh, to make a reconciliation between the French and Ho Chi Minh, that, that he was against the French colonial war. And where I found this book particularly valuable was in, in his understanding of the Vietnamese and his understanding of their revolution. And it changed my whole attitude about uh, the war. Did you have the feeling that we were going to make the same mistakes that the French had made after reading that? Well, it seemed to me that it would be, in some way, because quantitatively different in simply magnitude and force, uh, that it might be qualitatively different. At the same time, I could, the more I learned about the Vietnamese, and a lot of this was done after I came back, after that year in Vietnam, the more I understood that, that nothing had changed for them, that we were the equivalent of the French and that we were simply carrying on an useless and probably doomed war as the French had. Jap spent the spring of 1953 sending 40,000 of his own men and another 4,000 Pathet Lao guerrillas against the 10,000 and change that the French had spread out all over Laos. The French narrowly avoided a Viet Minh capture of the royal capital by establishing another even farther flung airhead and by sacrificing several more forts like Sergeant Payroll's the previous fall. And Giap, not particularly concerned about capturing anything Laotian in the first place, let them have the country, pulling back to the border for the rainy season. The French public, already demoralized by the direction of the war, didn't take the Laotian news well, and in May, a public opinion poll by Le Monde found that more than 66% of voters favored either a negotiated armistice or a full-fledged unilateral withdrawal. Only one-fifth wanted any increase in military action. 1953 also saw the publication of two books in France, one of which we've quoted from citations in other works, and one of which we have in pseudo-translation, the first being Philip Devier's History of Vietnam from 1940 to 1952, and the second being Paul Muse's Vietnam Sociology of a War, neither of which was all that optimistic about the prospects of an eventual French military victory. 
The crisis of public confidence became even more acute when Prime Minister Rene Meyer's government collapsed towards the end of May. The search for a workable parliamentary coalition dragged on for 30 days, with the anti-war Pierre Mendes France of the Radical Socialists nearly taking over, a position from which he probably would have halted hostilities, regardless of American feeling. He was barely beaten out by a grouping of centrists and rightists, though, and Joseph Laniel assumed control, a position he would hold until the effective end of the war. In Indochina, Henri Navarre took over for Raoul Salon as commander-in-chief in May, and Maurice de Jean for Letourneau as high commissioner in August. From Fall, quote, On February 28, 1953, Salon underlined the possibility of a defense of the highlands from strong points such as Nasan, Lai Chao, and, quote-unquote, eventually Dien Bien Phu. While in his communication of May 25, 1953, after his successor had already arrived in Indochina, but three days before Navarre took effective command, Salon underlined the usefulness of a reconquest of Dien Bien Phu, unquote. Now, I've been letting Logoval have all of the biography space in these past shows, so I'm going to give Bernard Fall a crack at it, drawn from his book on the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, Hell in a Very Small Place. Lieutenant General Navarre, who will be remembered in at least French history as the man who lost that battle, was, as Fall writes, a complicated man. Quote, An article published in a French army magazine in Indochina while Navarre was commander-in-chief contains the following revealing passages. The commander-in-chief of the French Union forces advanced towards the small group of officers standing at attention who had come to greet him and coldly shook the hands of two or three of them. And later, General Navarre is the happy owner of a Persian cat and hides from no one the fact that he adores cats, quote, because they prefer to be alone, and because they have an independent way of thinking, unquote. And Navarre, who is extremely sensitive, belongs to the category of people who are not afraid to be alone, who work alone, and find their strength within themselves. It is said that he has kept, from the years he spent in intelligence, the respect for secrecy and a taste for mystery, unquote. Henri Navarre's second-in-command, the guy who would run operations in the north while Navarre commanded from Saigon, Major General René Cogni, later said of him that, Quote, that air-conditioned general froze me. As for his way of thinking, it disconcerted me like an electronic computer, which I do not succeed in feeding the necessary basic data, and which, unperturbed, bases its reasoning on I don't know what. Perhaps I am better inspired in remembering the professional deformation of the man who served in intelligence, and whose reasoning finally becomes crooked because he must deal with so many crooked people, unquote. Henry Luce, head of Time magazine, was always willing to cheer anyone willing to fight the good dumb fight in Asia, and he had Time lionize Henri Navarre in September 1953, writing that, quote, There is an 18th century fragrance about him. He is a portrait on a cameo from the time of Louis XV. One almost expects ruffles and the powdered wig. He is the hardest general I know, clever and ruthless. He believes in nothing but the army, unquote. Time also quoted an American official in D.C. as willing at that time to support any anti-communist cause, however mendaciously, as anyone in the White House is to lie publicly now, which is to say, plenty. Quote, In our opinion, Navarre is a man of courage, energy, and imagination. He knows his business and has military and political guts of a high order. He is leading a new team, which looks pretty good to us, unquote. Time ended its profile with a quote as moronically optimistic as the rest of it. Quote, a year ago, none of us could see victory. There wasn't a prayer. Now we can see it clearly, like light at the end of a tunnel, unquote, in a phrase that would become very popular during America's years in Vietnam. Fall continues in his book, quote, 
But Navarre's character came through perhaps more clearly in a friendly press interview that he gave almost 10 years after the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. In response to the reporter's passing allusion to the alleged fact that after the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, a group of French officers in Indochina had sent him a beautifully lacquered box with a loaded pistol inside, a clear reference to the tradition that a senior commander should not survive a major defeat. Navarre's remarks were as follows. Quote, I would not have done it in any case. Aside from any other consideration, to commit suicide would have meant absolving everybody else from any responsibility by recognizing myself guilty. I have a very strong feeling of responsibility for Dien Bien Phu. I have no feeling of guilt. Unquote and unquote. When the French sold Navarre to the Americans, who didn't want any of the candidates that French High Command in Paris had originally thought of, they argued that his very inexperience in Indochina was a positive. He would come with a quote-unquote absence of prejudice about the system. The Americans, lacking anyone else, went along. As Logeval says, quote, Navarre's task, he knew, was enormous, to lead a war theater larger than metropolitan France, located more than 8,500 miles from home, with a fighting force approaching half a million men, including the VNA, the Vietnamese National Army, as large as most combat armies of World War II. Using that force, he had to salvage the war effort, turn things around, and justify the immense sacrifices the Expeditionary Corps had already made. To date, the fighting had killed three generals, eight colonels, 18 lieutenant colonels, 69 majors, 341 captains, 1,140 lieutenants, 3,683 NCOs, and 6,008 soldiers of French nationality, 12,019 legionnaires and Africans, and 14,093 Indochinese troops. These numbers did not include the missing or wounded, about 20,000 and 100,000, respectively." Unquote. Navarre started off his tenure in Indochina with a great show of public confidence, reinforcing, at least rhetorically, the idea that he would bring back the verve of years before, going so far as to say that victory was certain. In meetings between Georges Bidot, overseas minister again now, and Dulles in early summer 1953, the French overseas minister emphasized that the public had turned against the war, and that the American peace negotiations at Panmunjom had proved contagious in French public opinion, which was now pushing for a similar escape from a lengthy, brutal conflict. Dulles countered that the Americans had fought themselves into a strong bargaining position, which wasn't really true, and that the French should do the same. Bideau made no promises, except that France would, quote, liquidate the war with honor, unquote. From Logueval, quote, Privately, most French leaders had given up entirely on the idea of victory, but were unwilling to admit it to the Americans. Former Prime Minister René Meyer was blunt, quote, It seems evident that among French businessmen and civil servants who know Indochina well, nobody believes anymore that it is possible to beat the Viet Minh militarily. Nevertheless, in order to induce Washington to grant France sizable direct assistance, the notion has to be propagated that additional efforts might yield decisive results, unquote, and unquote. The Korean armistice was signed, like we said a little bit earlier, on July 27, and it obviously didn't fire up the French public in support of continuing their own war, which had already lasted more than twice as long as the American one. Moreover, if the French were now guaranteeing the independence of the Indochinese-associated states as soon as the war was over, why the hell were they fighting it? Remember that anti-communism for the French was just a screen. In a fight that was really a pissing contest between East and West, and not an attempt to recover their colonial possessions, they were pretty happy to sit out. Navarre, once he got to Indochina, was smarter than his public rhetoric, which was meant, I think, to mirror some of Delatre's old Elan and esprit de corps. Privately, Navarre had his doubts, and once he arrived in Indochina, outgoing staff officers like Raoul Salan gave him the full brunt of their pessimism. 
What Navarro wasn't close to thinking about, though, was a political settlement. That, ostensibly, could wait until he'd given Jap a drumming or two. There's a whole other narrative here, where American attachés in Saigon developed a modified Letourneau plan, but I'm not going to give it to you because it was never implemented and it's not important, and if you want to read about it, read Logoval's book. What ended up becoming Navarre's strategy, even if he would have preferred the Letourneau plan, some permutation of it, or something else entirely, American pressure to do something, Jap's presence in the Highlands, Salon's parting note for him, and the only hopeful operation of the summer ended up pushing him in the direction that he would go towards the isolated valley of Dien Bien Phu. That hopeful operation was the evacuation of the airhead at Na San. Having beat back the massed Viet Minh attacks of fall 1952 and held out, totally isolated in enemy territory for 10 months, supplied only by air, it also closed up shop more successfully than virtually any other French venue for the whole war, managing to airlift all of its personnel and supplies right out from under the Viet Minh's noses which was the other fatefully bad lesson the French would draw from Na San, that a similar operation could be attempted at similarly low cost. Now French tanks in action, for well, this is Indochina where the seven-year struggle against the Viet Minh still goes on. These pictures give a glimpse of the recent battle near Dien Bien Phu, with French Union forces counterattacking at vital points in an effort to halt the enemy offensive. Meanwhile, enemy bases were subjected to constant shelling by heavy artillery. French commander-in-chief in Indochina, General Navarre, has since spoken with confidence of the present situation. His decoration as Grand Officer of the Legion of Honor was presented by Monsieur Plevin, Minister of Defense, during a recent visit to Saigon. One of our authors, Bernard Fall, arrived in Vietnam for his first tour, just in time to see the effects that the Korean truce would have on the troops and morale in the country. We have talked about Fall a lot on this cast, and I think it's time we heard where he came from. Fall was born into a middle-class Jewish family in Vienna in the 20s, lost both of his parents to the Nazis before escaping to France, joining the resistance, and becoming a maquisard at 16. He served under Delatre in the Free French, and later worked in intelligence because of his German. He spent a short time doing research for the Nuremberg Tribunal, and then he went back to studying, first in Paris, then in Munich, then on a Fulbright in the U.S. at Syracuse. A professor told him Indochina might be an interesting topic, since nobody in the U.S. was writing on it, and nearly nobody in France was either. He said in a radio interview in the United States in 1966 that, quote, By pure accident, one sunny day in Washington, D.C., of all places, in 1952, I got interested in Vietnam, and it's been sort of a bad love affair ever since, unquote. Fall spent the summer and the fall in country, and he said that when peace broke out in Korea, it, quote, brought a wave of exasperation and hopelessness to the senior commanders that, though hidden to outsiders, was nevertheless obvious, unquote. France wasn't fighting on one of two fronts in the same war anymore. Washington had made its separate peace, and inasmuch as more planes and guns were arriving every day, it was French, Moroccan, Algerian, Laotian, Cambodian, and above all, Vietnamese boys dying out in the bush. From Logoval, quote, Fall sought to understand the security situation inside the Red River Delta. A French officer assured him that defenses were strong. 
We are going to deny the communists access to the 8 million people in this delta and the 3 million tons of rice, and will eventually starve them out and deny them access to the population. Did the Viet Minh hold any areas in the delta? Fall asked. Yes, the officer replied, pointing to his map. They hold these little blue blotches, one, two, three, four, and a little one over here. How did he know? It is simple. When we go there, we get shot at. That's how we know. Unquote. Fall, though, in investigating on his own, discovered that virtually none of the villages in the Red River Delta were contributing the taxes they ostensibly owed to the central government, which meant that they were contributing, in fact, to the Viet Minh by way of communist cadres. Fall made up his own maps and determined that the DRVN controlled about 70% of the Red River Delta inside of the Delatra line. That is, all of it, except for Hanoi, Haiphong, their suburbs, and a bubble around the garrison line. Ambushes and attacks like the ones that had fallen on convoys traversing the mountains were now happening inside the encircling line of bunkers, and the French position was looking ever more precarious. Now this next long quote comes from an issue of Newsweek from 1953. Quote, A British officer reached a similar conclusion after accompanying a French unit on a sweep of the delta a few miles south of Hanoi. He wrote of seeing a, quote, innocent-looking village, unquote, mortared and shelled by tanks and artillery for two hours, and then joining the French troops as they proceeded carefully into the town. A captured villager, presumably Viet Minh, pointed to a pile of debris in the center of the village and said that it hid the entrance to a tunnel. The large heap is quickly swept away, and the Moroccans vigorously set to with their spades. After a quarter of an hour's digging, the tunnel is found far beneath the ground. Two hand grenades are then almost daintily dropped within. After the smoke from the explosion has almost blown away, a tiny head appears above the ground, and then another. Seemingly from the depths of the earth, ten muddy-looking individuals emerge. They are arrested, and a little Moroccan soldier with a cocky smile prepares to descend with the torch to look for the weapons which are bound to be there. But he does not get far. It seems impossible, but there are still more communists below. A grenade is hurled at him from the darkness, and after an ear-splitting explosion, the poor screaming wretch is extracted with both his legs shattered. However, after a few more acts of persuasion, the remaining two come up. Who threw the grenade? The officer shouts at them. The more timid-looking of the two points to his partner, who then asked, confesses to the deed without the least sign of concern. Where are the arms? He is asked, but he only shakes his head. The Moroccans gladly shoot him, but the prisoners are unmoved by the execution and do not even turn their heads away. And when faced with the same question and the same threat, they refuse to answer. What is it that they have that we don't have? The Briton plaintively asked himself with references to the villagers and their dedication to Ho Chi Minh. No doubt the French found the weapons, but there were plenty of others they did not find. When I left the village, it was all quiet, except for the odd mine going off. Probably the same little drama was going on in all the villages. The following day, the troops would leave the area. The Viet Minh would emerge from the many undiscovered tunnels and set to work and rebuild their defenses, and next year all these little scenes will be repeated. A frustrated French intelligence colonel said at about the same time, quote, as long as the village populations are against us, we'll just be treading water, unquote, and unquote. Now this following is from an editorial from an August 1953 issue of Life that also ran a photo report called Indochina All But Lost. Quote, two recent events would seem to give the casual headline reader grounds for hope. First, France has offered to negotiate with Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos over full independence, the lack of which limits their support for the anti-communist cause. Second, the recent paratroop raid on Lang Son, which wiped out a big red depot on the supply line from Red China, seemed to show that the new French general, Henri Navarre, has a taste for action. Alas, these signs are not conclusive. For Paris, where the big decisions about this war are made, is still the world headquarters of sophisticated defeatism, 
U.S. policy tries to bolster such partisans of courage as can still be found in France. One of these is General Navarre, who has offered Paris a plan for a victorious offensive. His Lang Son raid, meaningless unless followed up, was a sort of advanced sample. The French cabinet nibbled at his big plan last week, but will take no decisive action until October. Communist propaganda accuses the U.S. of trying to supplant the French in Indochina. Sometimes it seems regrettable that there is no way to make this false charge true. But as things are, French military men are indispensable to saving Indochina from the communists, whatever the Indochinese may think, and a French will to win is therefore a necessary, though not a sufficient, condition of victory. With U.S. and Vietnamese support, that victory is entirely feasible." Unquote. Now, Henry Luce, enraged that so defeatist a pair of pieces, and I don't think that piece was very defeatist, had managed to run in one of his own magazines, published a rebuttal in the next issue, titled, France is Fighting the Good Fight. Both time and life, with Luce watching more carefully after that point, did what they'd done in China, ignored obvious evidence to the contrary, and said that the French could and would win. Eisenhower, despite the French public's reluctance to fight on, took the changes in French leadership and strategy at face value, and followed through on his end, upping the year's initial ask of $400 million for the French to $785 million in September, over $7 billion or so in today's dollars. The Congress, despite some mild critiques from the right by Barry Goldwater about fiscal responsibility, and some more moral ones by JFK about a French failure to promise or grant real independence to the associated states, passed the new spending totals with no real opposition. If Ho Chi Minh were a Westerner, he would probably have be known as the best public relations conscious Western ruler in the world. He is extremely uh, response conscious. Everything is done with the, its effect, its ultimate effect on the populace. The uncle idea is his idea. It's Bakho in Vietnamese, it's Uncle Ho. Remember this, these words by an American officer who knew him back in 45, says, this awfully sweet old guy. You know, well, you don't go around and call Stalin or even Gomulka or uh, Khadar an awfully sweet guy or even Tito. These, these may be at certain times not totally despicable people, but uh, nobody will ever say of Mao Zedong that he was an awfully sweet old guy. Whereas of Ho Chi Minh, this is the sort of thing come through. Now, some people say this is a 24-hour-a-day act, and it will point to the fact that uh, when it comes down to the crunch, Ho Chi Minh in the past has at least allowed, if not ordered, the execution of some fairly old associates. But uh, Ho Chi Minh has succeeded in preserving, uh, in keeping a distance from all this. It's always the assumption, if only Ho Chi Minh knew, these things wouldn't take place. And this has really been... Uh, a fantastic performance in this particular sense. Nothing that ever happens in North Vietnam that's bad reflects on Ho Chi Minh as a person. There's yet, in South Vietnam, for example, anyone who's willing to go on record insulting Ho Chi Minh as a person. You, I'm sure you are as aware as I of that the South Vietnamese will say a great deal about the North Vietnamese, that they're communist puppets, that, they, that they're fighting the, the China's wars, etc., etc. But uh, you will not say, find anybody who say Ho Chi Minh is a dirty bird. Some of the things that you hear in South Vietnam always is, well, when everything's been said and done, Ho Chi Minh is the George Washington of this country. And we are in the unhappy position of having to find a counter George Washington. And these, these are people hard to find these days, anywhere. So, Navarro was in Vietnam, American aid was forthcoming, and Giap was overrunning most of the Laotian countryside, but not the capital. 
The Deltas were full of infiltrators. The Americans were pushing Navarre to implement some grand strategy for total victory, which the general did not believe existed, and he was looking for anything he could do to give the French a better position for negotiations that were going to have to start soon, because otherwise the Viet Minh were going to push them into the sea. The Letourneau plan was a non-starter on its face, and early trials of the purely Vietnamese National Army light battalions ended in murderous defeats, totally ruling it out. John Foster Dulles's claims to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that Navarre would be able to, quote, break the organized body of communist aggression by the end of the 1955 fighting season, unquote, was, as Fall writes, quote, like much that has come out of Washington about Vietnam since, wildly wishful thinking, unquote. The French National Defense Council had given Navarre a set of secret orders in July, telling him even as they were assuring Washington that they were fighting for victory, that Navarre's objective, bar none, was just to keep the expeditionary force intact, even at the cost of losing Laos entirely. The evacuation of the Nassan airhead in August was made for exactly that reason, and Lai Chao, where the two women of the BMC almost won their Croix de Guerre, emptied the same way later in the year. Into the fall, Navarre made some abortive stabs into the Viet Minh-controlled highlands around the Delta, but Giap, with more than 60,000 guerrillas along with five regular regiments, or another few thousand men, infiltrated within the Delatra line, decided that his position was secure, and continued with his invasion of Laos, with his troops eventually marching as far south as Cambodia. Navarre, who had anticipated that continued invasion and been powerless to stop it, came up with one more plan. It was related to Lorraine, which had tried to cut off Jap's logistics mid-supply line, and to the defense of Nassan, which had gone so well. Navarre would reoccupy the valley of Dien Bien Phu, using it as a base from which to interdict Viet Minh lines of communication. The valley was too wide, too broad, the French thought, for the troops stationed there to get caught in a hedgehog, as at Na San, meaning that they would have the benefits of manning a fortified position if the Viet Minh were to attack, and that they would have room to maneuver, and thus actually pose a problem for Viet Minh passing from north to south, versus smaller posts like Na San, which had been surrounded and then just ignored. Despite the valley's distance, it was nestled right up against the Laotian border, much further than Nassan from Hanoi. It had a certain attraction. The French had used it as a supply post and base from the very beginning of colonization, and if we can think back far enough, the forces fleeing to safety during the Japanese coup in 1945 also took refuge there. It had stayed on as a post since it occupied a central position in the passage from the Vietnamese Thai highlands into Laos, and rather than being the site of former tragedy during Jap's northwest offensive, Ceylon had had it evacuated in time. Ceylon had even begun laying plans for retaking it, what with the way it sat among the approaches to Laos. Of course, that was only really true if you had to use the roads, which, we'll again recall, the Viet Minh most emphatically did not. Those plans, however, stayed current and updated at headquarters in Saigon, and as the situation in Indochina got away from him, and his other gambits failed, Henri Navarre became more and more fixed on the idea of that valley. It could be, it would be, that it would work like past airheads. Jap would break his troops upon it in the same way that he had thrown his forces like a tide to be broken against the embrasures and fortifications of the French at Nassan. And so Henri Navarre would create a fortress in the jungle, designed both to lure and to break the bulk of Jap's army. General Vo Nguyen Jap, attentive student of seven years of jungle fighting and a master of several hard-fought lessons on French fortresses, had other ideas in store.
that right there was the end of this episode of SFD. No fooling this time. The next one is Dien Bien Phu itself and probably the end of the French war tacked on if I can fit it all and make it work. Now, the aside I'm not doing ad hoc this time, so I can transition the music, like this, rather than cutting it off entirely. Look folks, let's make a few things clear. First, whatever you're hearing out of the administration, the kidnapping policy on the southern border is new. Preventing people from seeking asylum is new. Jailing asylum seekers so that you can kidnap their kids is new. Second, as of writing, the president's solution to this problem is to give the Congress a 20-day deadline to fix things, same as he did with DACA and the Dreamers, and we saw how that turned out. And given that the entire Democratic Congressional Caucus has signed onto a bill that would solve this problem immediately, and that the Republican Caucus won't sign that bill and is split within itself, debating over two different bills that both failed to do anything of substance, we're seeing it turn out like that all over again. Third, the president's solution isn't a solution. They're still jailing people who haven't done anything wrong, they're just jailing them as families. Fourth, the government made no plans nor provisions for the thousands of kids that it kidnapped. That's thousands of kids stolen, thousands abused, thousands hurt, and thousands whom the government has no way to reunite with their parents. Even if the Congress comes together, we've still got grave crimes and a grave problem on our hands. Fifth, if you think that ideas about borders and restricting immigration that are very new in human history are for some reason God-given laws and restrictions that must be followed no matter their human consequences, then you're still picking the wrong people to have beef with. Don't attack the migrants, the refugees, the people fleeing oppression, like ICE is doing, like in its largest ever raid launched just this past week at a meatpacking plant in Ohio. Attack the people illegally employing those migrants. ICE is going to deport everybody they found at that plant. The people that own it? Zero consequences. If a dude's driving around your neighborhood offering candy to kids and being creepy to them when he does it, do you call the cops on the kids or on the guy with the candy? Sixth and finally, the United States, in better days, made one of the first steps towards a real framework of international law. After the Second World War, rather than the victors write the history and facts be damned approach of the treaty process and blame assignment at Versailles, we set up a war crimes tribunal. We provided payment for excellent representation of the accused. We gave the process years. We let anybody see it who wanted to. And we established in the course of those proceedings, for the world to see, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that following orders is never an excuse for immoral conduct meaning that everybody participating in this mess is complicit and responsible. Nobody gets to claim that it was just a job, just what he or she was told to do. Nobody gets to wash their hands. So everybody ought to watch out what they're getting their hands into. All right, enough of that. We're not gonna make it all that far this summer, Vietnam-wise, but I think I'll manage to keep you up to your neck in audio for a little while yet, at the very least. I'd have to push it to get to JFK in any depth, but I might keep using future sources in current shows, as it were, like the Fitzgerald stuff in this one, giving everybody a preview of what might have been. Remember, remember, please to rate and review, and if you're into that, check out the Patreon. But it's really more the first thing than the second. Nearly nobody has rated or reviewed the show, and there are way more of you than nobody, so please, please invest the five minutes that it would take. Make it a one-sentence review. Make it a one-word review. Just do it, folks. Do it for me, and do it for SFD. Okay, enough already. 
Next time, it's Henri Navarre, General Cogni, Langley and Bigeard, the Paratroop Mafia, the women of the BMC, and the French catastrophe in a far-flung, little-known valley in Vietnam. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.